Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. All right, well, welcome. I am here with Father Andrew Jarmus. He currently lives in Indiana and uh, is a priest and a father at the St. Nicholas Cathedral. Am I right? Yep, correct. And Father Andrew, you are an Eastern Orthodox priest. Yep. And I am very fascinated with Eastern Orthodox tradition, especially in the past few years. I've really been looking into it. So I'm super excited. And I'm really grateful that when I reached out to you, you responded and you were interested in having a conversation. And I, I'm really excited for what uh what we get into tonight so i guess um you know the term i've been thinking about is spiritual heritage everybody has a spiritual heritage and like um somewhere where they have some sort of spiritual roots especially in like the in the realm of experience um especially in if you're you know actively seeking spirituality whether christian or not i think it's really fascinating so i'd love to hear a little bit of your story of where did you come from? Um, where are your roots? And then we can go from there. Sure. Um, absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in Canada um, on the prairies and uh, right in the middle of the country in, in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, my father is an Eastern Orthodox priest. He, uh, he was uh, from Ukraine. So I grew up in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And um, so I've, you know, I've orthodoxy has been part of my my journey all, all the way back from from childhood from well from birth um and uh i was um the church my faith was always important i i, I don't think as a kid or growing up i could really articulate why because it was what i knew and it was what i was familiar with and it's what i loved um but when I did my undergraduate degree, I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Manitoba, and it was in psychology. And at the time that I took the degree, I'm not sure what the school is like now, but at that point, it was very wrapped up in uh, the behaviorist school of psychology, which basically says uh, that a human being is just a complex set of responses to a complex set of stimuli. And so as I went through that that program, the the more I the more I learned, the less I was convinced that that was the case. Um, so I took a couple of a couple of courses, just general religious studies courses, uh, in my 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 final year of of university there. Uh, and it was uh, during that that I I decided that, that I wanted to go to seminary. And you know I I have to I have to say one of the the great gifts that my father gave me was never pushing me into the priesthood. Uh, and because 
for me, um, you know, over three generations, so my generation, my father and my grandfather's generation, uh, there were seven Orthodox priests. Uh, my grandfather wasn't a priest, but in those generations. So there, so there was a lot of Orthodox priesthood going on in, 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 in my family. And my father was very intentional to not sort of, I, I hate to use this term, but not put that on me. That if, if it was going to be, it was going to be because I was called and it had to come from within. And I remember even telling him, or when I told him I want to go to seminary, he said, are you sure? Are you sure? He was also on, on the faculty at the seminary that I, that I studied at initially in Canada. So uh, I had some pretty direct and regular conversations with him. Um, but it was really in my first, my first year of seminary, as I, as I began to learn more about the faith, about the whys, and, and then what was going on and why we did what we did, that that was a, that was an incredibly, that was a life-changing moment for me. And I, you know, I, again, I, I always loved the faith, but to be able to really explain Okay, well, well, why are you doing this? Or why is this important? I, you know, I couldn't do that. And part of that was just being, you know, young. I mean, I'm talking about just coming out of, you know, high school and and, and uh, in my early college years. But but that first year of seminary, I always liken it to, let's say you're sitting in a room and it's dark and you look around and you can kind of see the shapes that are in the room. You kind of know where the chair is and you know where the, the, the coffee table is because, and then somebody turns the lights on and all of a sudden you start seeing color and texture and you know, detail. And, and that for me was my first year in seminary as I began to learn that these, these things that, that we practiced, the things that we did, the things that we uh, believed, how, how the dots connected together and, and that all of it made sense. And I guess I, maybe that's like a confession that I was surprised that it all made sense. <laughs> Not because I didn't think it, it, it would make sense, but it just never really, never really dawned on me, but like, wow, this really makes sense. And it was really at that point um and then going through my, my my seminary years that i i decided that i i really want to do something whatever i end up doing in, in ministry i part of it has to be about sharing the faith and, and and getting the message out because um the orthodox in the 20th century did not do a great job in in north america and generally in the West, in, in sharing the faith. Now, there were reasons for that. There were historical reasons, social, social sociological reasons, reasons for that. I'm not, uh, you know, it wasn't just like it was a big fail and they were lazy. There was a lot of things going on. And uh, they were bringing a lot of history, a lot of pain, a lot of baggage with them from their various old countries. So that's not, a, that's not in any way a criticism. It's simply a fact. So... I, that's what I wanted to do. And um, I did. Uh, uh, so that was a master of divinity, which was sort of a basic theology degree. Then I went to Holy Cross School of Theology in, in Boston or Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, for a, a master of theology. And that was just more of the same, you know, look, digging deeper and learning more and getting exposed to, to um, different thinkers. And uh, just some of these people that I, the, the books I read, you know, I was getting to listen to them lecture and and visit and that, and, and that was it. It was just this for me. This faith, the the faith was this amazing treasure, and it was, you know, it was always a treasure for me. But the longer I've lived with it, the, the more valuable and the more beautiful and the more meaningful uh, it, it has become. And that hasn't ended. You know that that has definitely not ended. 
and and I don't think it will end. I think that's one of the beauties of growing in, in faith, and it's it's one of the beauties of, of coming to know God. God is eternal, so so the the experience and the learning and the knowing that that's never ending. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, just to backtrack real quick, like going back to before you made the decision to pursue the priesthood, were there any experiences that you had that were kind of mystical or like that kind of drew you? Um, sure. Like yeah. There, there, yes, there was one. And thank you for asking that because I had, I had been thinking about that and uh, wasn't trying to work it in, but um, yeah, there, there was an experience. So my father, he taught in seminary. He was, he was involved in, in, in teaching and also in our church administration, our, our churches head offices were in Winnipeg and he served in a parish that was a couple of hours outside of Winnipeg. He would go usually every couple of Sundays. It wasn't a very large parish. So, so my, my childhood kind of was involved with either attending local churches or else going with my dad to the church where he was serving uh, out in Ontario. And th there was a gentleman there who, um, he helped him in the altar, you know, because when our services there, you know, there, there's a lot to them and you need, you know, you can't do them all by yourself. Well, you can, but you're, you know, it's very hard. So there was a soul gentleman that assisted my, my dad in the altar. And in one year, um, he had to go for surgery. So he came to the city, he came into Winnipeg for surgery, and it was right, uh, he, he had to be um, in, in the hospital over our Easter weekend. So he didn't get to go to the Easter service. So it was about the, the day or two, like Monday or Tuesday after Easter, and my dad uh, was going to go visit him in the hospital and take him communion. We had talked about, you and I had talked about communion earlier. Uh, so it's to take him communion. And he asked me, for some reason, he asked me if I wanted to, to come along. And I, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know, 19, 20. And, uh, and, and for whatever reason, I said, sure. <laughs> Like I honestly, you know, uh, so I, I went and went along. And so, you know, uh, we, we visited with this, we talked a little bit and chatted and, and then my father said, well, would you like communion? Yes, I would. He said, so my dad, we have this little kit where we take the communion with us and there's a little cup that we, we put the gifts in and we, you know, like a little chalice. And so my dad prepared all of this and he was reading these, these prayers. And so it was, and I, it was my father. And this, this old gentleman and, and me, the three of us were in the room. And then at, I don't even know exactly when it was, but suddenly it dawned on me that there was a fourth person in the room. And it was the risen Christ. Like right at the end of the bed. I could just, my dad was sort of with, with the gentleman, this gentleman by the bed, I was standing back and it was like just to my right. And, and I, I mean, and I, I was just overcome. I was in tears. And my father turned turned to me and said, "Okay," and I, and I and I explained, you know, and it it just it just you know hit me of you know wherever two or three of you gather, I am there in their midst, and it was just this profound feeling of his presence. You know, I didn't see him with my eyes. Oh, you didn't? Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Like, did he, was but, it busy? but just you know, like when you're when you're you're with somebody and they're just beside you and you, you, you know, they're there. Like, you don't have, you don't even really looking at them, but you know, they're there. their presence. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah. And, and I mean, it well, was you didn't just sense it like a ethereal presence, but you no. sense it like a person. Yeah. A person standing wow. right sort of off to my right at the end of the bed. It was 
like I say, I can't even explain it. You know, I can't give you enough words to explain it. Um, and so that was, wow. You know, that was like, wow. Um, yeah. And, and I had, you know, I had never, I had, you know, I mean, again, I, I don't consider myself any kind of mystic or having, you know, great mystical experiences in my life, but that was just this, this moment of saying, yep, he's real. This is real. Yeah. yeah. That's so neat. Yeah. That's wicked cool. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the reason I love to ask that is because I mean, yes, I know like whatever an atheist or whatever could say, well, it's not falsifiable or, or whatever. Um, but um, I don't know. I think it, it changes the whole um, discussion. Cause then it, it goes down to like, this is your experience, your lived experience versus just like talking about some abstract idea. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like to start with experience first, because it's really fascinating. I mean, why the heck are there so many people who go to churches or worship God? It's when it comes down to it, ultimately, it's because they've had some sort of experience mm-hmm. with the risen Lord or the, the spirit or the Holy Spirit or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that was an experience. And I mean, it, you know, th- it's, it's not, it's not unique that you people have these experiences when they're you know kind of like least expected it. I mean, I wasn't expecting to go to this hospital and you know to have this this personal deep encounter with the risen Christ in this room. Mm. I was expecting to visit this nice old man who I knew from church and you know hang out with my dad a little bit. So and that's also a, a lot of times how it you know it it happens. It happens unaware. Which is why I think a lot of times in the scriptures, you know, what's the first thing that that the, the you know that when a person is visited by an angel or somebody, well, the first thing they say, "Don't be afraid," because you know, yeah. it's it's just come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the yeah, and I'm sure the presence is also shocking because it's not it's not what you typically experience, you know. And it's yeah, and, it's, and now I'm sure like the aspect of the holiness too is there's kind of like a a fear when when you're in the presence of something holy. There's something sure. this holy fear that comes over you. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A godly kind of fear when you're, um, when you're, yeah. I mean, when you're in the presence of the Holy and you think about, think about Peter, you know, when at the, at the catch of fish, you know, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, because Peter just sees the, the, the power and the authority in Christ. Mm. And, and when we come up against that, you know, no kidding, that's going to, that's going to be overpowering you know it's and and that's a lot of you know for the orthodox you know church you know this whole idea of the fear of god right um it's not it's not that god wants us or expects us to be afraid of him or or needs us to be afraid of him but this is just the natural human reaction to encountering something so much greater than us yeah so uh yeah so holy I mean, that's, I guess it's like what holiness is. It's just, it's so other. It's other. Yeah. That's exactly what holy to be holy means is to be set apart. Right. So God is holy because there's none other, no, no, no one else like him. Wow. And we are called to be holy, to set ourselves apart, to worship and serve him. Cool. So that kind of spurred you on this journey. And then mm-hmm. as, and then after the experience, then you're, you're learning and now you're, you're intellectually corroborating the experience yes. you know and that's yeah. when it's like oh this is real you know um yeah well it, yeah it, it was head and heart you know and i mean i didn't need see i didn't need it it's gonna sound kind of weird i didn't need it to make sense 
-hmm. I was just really delighted that it did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Because I'm, yeah, ultimately, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But when it does, it's like, it's really something special, and mm -hmm. then changes everything, right? Yep. That's what's mm -hmm. so cool about it. I mean, yeah. where would you have been if you if had you had not had that experience? Right. Who knows. But um, and then going forward, so you went to Boston and mm -hmm. you studied there. Now, do they have a Orthodox seminary there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology, which is in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts. So just a, wow. Yeah, that's cool. It's funny. So I um um I live in Central Massachusetts in this little city. Well, right outside this little city called Worcester. It's up in oh, Worcester. Coming. Sure, I know. I know Worcester. No, Worcester. You know Worcester. <laughs> I know Worcester. Worcester. Yes, I have been. To How Worcester. long ago were you in uh, in Massachusetts? <laughs> in the twentieth century, I was in Massachusetts. <laughs> in the 20th century so, back in the 20th century so worcester has changed a lot in just the past like 10 years like it's really mm -hmm. grown a lot um it's really an up-and-coming city a lot of growth now we have like a little baseball field a uh, little third th division three baseball field and a lot of like uh ecom e like uh, commerce and economic growth and mm -hmm. development for sure um right. but like there's so there's like this spattering of like a few little Orthodox churches and I've been, mm -hmm. I've been really wanting to check them out, but I get this sense that they're very kind of ethnic, you know, it's like a, there's the Greek mm -hmm. Orthodox church and there's a Russian Orthodox church and then there's an Armenian church too. Mm -hmm. So it's like really, it's really interesting um, how there's, they, there seems to be like a, almost these ethnic divisions within um, Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Di yeah division might be a not the right i think word. it's on a well i think it's on a continuum let me put it to you that way i think yeah. you know sometimes sometimes there are delineations and sometimes there are divisions you know yeah. uh depending on depending on your you know you, the, the the certain point in history that you're at and and kind of what's going on um yeah so so orthodoxy in, in north america has this interesting history because um initially the, the the first Orthodox uh, here do arrive as missionaries. Really, in the 1700s uh, in Alaska. So oh, yeah. Alaska is still part of the of the Russian Empire at that time, um, and Saint Herman and, and these monks from this this monastery called Valam Monastery are sent over uh, to to serve the needs of the settlers, the Russian settlers in Alaska. And when they get there. Uh, they they are really upset with how the how the settlers are treating the the native Alaskans, and they take the side of the native Alaskans. And these these are people made in God's image. They deserve to be honored and respected and loved. Like you know, like you you can't you can't exploit them and, and abuse them like you are. Uh, they, they this did not make them very popular with the settlers, uh, but it but it did uh, it did. Um, you know, re resonate with the with with the the native Alaskans, and so that really is is the beginning of orthodoxy, and that's that's a, 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 you know a, a a real intentional missionary effort to bring orthodox Christianity to the native native peoples of Alaska and to the peoples of Alaska in general, but specifically to the native peoples. So that's Alaska in the 1700s, but then you, th this other thing happens. 
in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, you get these immigrations from various Orthodox countries. And at, at that point, you do see you do see some interest and some um, awareness that you know we're we're here, we're in America, we need to make this faith accessible to people. Um, there was uh, so you you see English translations of the of, of the liturgical uh, books, the, the worship books, the service books, the prayer books. Already back then, you see um, there was a. Uh, a priest named, oh, I hope his, I hope I get his la last name right. My my very good friend, Father Samuel Davis, will be upset if I don't. Father Raphael Morgan, who is who was who was African American, uh, and was or I'm, I don't know, maybe maybe he wasn't African American. I think he might have came from the West Indies. At any rate, he's ordained a priest, and he's ordained a priest specifically to serve the African American community. I think it, out on the, yeah, I think it was around Philadelphia. I, I, but anyway, so so there was a sense clearly, in the, in the early part of the 20th century, that you know we're here, and and we need to to be witnessing here, um, the Russian Orthodox uh, bishop at the time, uh, Tikhon, who was a saint, Saint Tikhon, was had a vision for this for for planting the church in North America, and bringing all the Orthodox together in the, in the, this one church, one effort, one voice. Then you then you hit the Russian Revolution. While you hit the First World War, the Russian Revolution, um, you hit the economic problems uh, in the interwar period, and you hit the Second World War, and everything changes because. And okay, okay, and I will I will say this: this is a Father Andrew Jarmus observation. So somebody else could say, ah, that's not it. But my observation would be that as a result of those events, let's say from 1917 to 1945, you had people leaving their home countries, not necessarily because they wanted to in order to build a life someplace else, but because they had to as displaced persons. So they come to the West because it wasn't just America, it was Canada, it was Western Europe, it was Australia, it was other places too. And they just brought their lives with them. And part of their life was their faith. And their faith in the language that they worshipped and the various, you know, cultural traditions and things that they, they, they knew back home. So, which is to say, I guess there's a long way of saying that although orthodoxy begins in North America as a, an intentional missionary effort in Alaska and a... Um, maybe a nascent missionary effort before the Russian Revolution and then the next 30 years. Um, events in, in the first half of the 20th century played to really change the reason why people left their homelands, why they came here, and really kind of the just the face of Orthodox Christianity here because people moved, transitioned from being Orthodox Americans of, of various ethnic backgrounds that were happened to, that were Orthodox to ethnic backgrounds that were Orthodox that happened to be in America, if you get the difference. Um, so, so, and that really, that really did. I mean, um, you know, we, um, you just have to say it. I mean, that really did slow down and, and shut down in a lot of ways, any kind of missionary efforts and, 
And, um, you know, there, because, because these countries had such, because their identities were so infused with Orthodox Christianity, um, the Greeks, the Romanians, the Serbians, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the, all of them, you know, because their identities were so infused with Orthodox Christianity. So this is who I am, therefore this is what I believe. When they came to America, they came assuming it was the same paradigm here. So Americans had American churches. Russians have Russian churches, Greeks have Greek churches, Americans have American churches. So it wasn't even necessarily that they were, that they were, you know, intentionally being xenophobic. It's just that a lot of times they do, they, like when you get the first wave of, of converts, let's say the late 1980s, well, maybe the, maybe a little earlier than that, uh, late the, the 70s and, and the 80s, when you get the first real kind of movement of converts into the Orthodox Church, a lot of, a lot of Orthodox Christians just didn't get it. Because they thought, well, you have your church. Why? What do you, you know, what do you need? What do you need this for? Um, so, so that was a lot of of, of why, you know, it, it, the the events of the 20th century really did play into us as the Orthodox, not really sharing the faith like we would have before that, and like we have in other parts of the world. You know, we didn't come in in initial. In the, most of the 20th century, people didn't come here as missionaries. They didn't come here to share the faith. They came here to build their lives, which included their faith. And that just changed what they understood the church to be, their mission to be, their identity to be. Oh, well, that's fascinating. It's interesting, the, the overlap between like geopolitics. Oh, yeah. and it's huge. It really is huge all throughout history. Massive. Especially, I, I just learned recently, I listened to this podcast called The Bible for Normal People. It's, it's really interesting. They kind of more have a progressive spin on things, but um, but I like just hearing the different perspectives that they bring on. And one of them talked about um, the Byzantine Empire and how that kind of like was basically like the Orthodox Church mixed in with the Roman like empire, essentially. And, and then over time, it's kind of evolved. And it's really fascinating how how it's changed over time. But then, like, basically, became the Russian Orthodox Church, and that, like, that is like, I'm pretty sure, like, the biggest Orthodox Church, right? The Russian Orthodox Church. Well, yeah, largest. Yeah, it's got the most adherents in mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. And then you have like the Oriental Orthodox, mm -hmm. right? That's like way out east. Like those are some of the oldest. Coptics, right? Ethiopians. Ethiopians. Yeah. That's really fascinating, because like that, you know, you have a lot of people who may say like, well, Christianity is like a white man's religion or something like that. But um, actually it's like it's the oldest, um, oh. oldest churches are black African churches. You know, um, Jerusalem, I'm sure has an Orthodox. Well, like, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I always find that interesting that, that, that this, this, there's this narrative that Christianity is this European religion, but uh, you know, a, 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 even a cursory glance at the first 300 years of, of, of Christian history, maybe even the first 500 really, you know the the two the two major um, centers for theological thought and teaching are Alexandria in North Africa and Antioch in in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically and they're like shaping the they're shaping the thought of the rest of Christianity. 
So, um, yeah, that's, but yeah, so that's, that's just, that's just not historically, that's just not accurate. I mean, I guess you could say that Protestantism has been predominantly European white, you know. Um, yeah, because that's because, where it started. But that's such a powerful force in America is Protestantism. Mm -hmm. you know? That's what's yeah. been the, the leading voice in Christian tradition and spirituality which makes it so difficult to access and understand the Eastern tradition because I'm, I'm just, I'm swimming in the soup of <laughs> um, Protestant, um, especially like this, the form that I grew up in was like kind of Pentecostal Protestant dispensationalism. Um, and I've talked quite a bit about dispensationalism and in other interviews and whatnot, but, um, but anyway, in like yeah rapture theology and stuff like that you know that's basically what it's what it's about if anybody's familiar with left behind but um yeah um so yeah i mean why don't we continue i mean is there any more you have you want to say about history or uh yeah i guess i, I just just briefly because <laughs> since you mentioned you mentioned byzantium mm -hmm. you know um you know there <laughs> there were times when that worked better and there were times when it didn't work so 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 well um there was this idea uh called symphonia which was you know it's a greek word to get obviously get the word symphony um the church and the state have their specific uh, spheres in, and they can you know they're the, and they can kind of work in cooperation they kind of you stay in your lane but you you cooperate to uh you know to 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 help the other you know to to advance in its particular sphere of of uh, of, of interest responsibility concern uh that you know that that was maybe a lot more an, an ideal than uh th than a reality or at the very least it kind of went and it ebbed and flowed that's probably a better way of saying it a lot depended on the emperor at the time. A lot depended on who the the church leadership was uh, at the time. Um, the one thing that I, I I will say about history is that, and this is another kind of narrative thing, but I think it's an important one that we we you know kind of clear up um, is that, that Constantine did not create you know, a, a, a new church and innovate and, you know, this sort of create these innovations in Christianity that get, you know, that usually in the West, they'll say he, he created the Catholic church. Well, uh, but, uh, you know, Constantine didn't, didn't create anything because uh, everything that, that, that gets really firmly articulated and established uh, during that era was there before i mean that's just a matter of historical record you know like people say well constantine created the trinity you know to uh, i don't know sort of make the pagans happy because they like polytheism that's that's one of them but but you know you see trinitarian theology in centuries before constantine it's there uh, Mary, same thing. Well, you know, because the the pagan goddesses, and he created Mary to keep. No, I mean, you see, you see references to Mary, the the earliest, the the, the oldest written hymn in existence that we know of today. The oldest written hymn, it dates back. Uh, the carbon dating is, or whatever the kind of thing they do now, uh, dating back to about the year sometime in the mid two hundreds, is a prayer to Mary which uses the term Theotokos, mother of God. 
So that's, I mean, that's hard evidence that those ideas predate Constantine. Hard evidence. So um, that would be the one thing that I would say, because there is this narrative that kind of Constant, Constantine kind of broke the church because he was trying to make, and that's that's just not the case. The other thing too is that the people, people, you know, the Constantine actually didn't make Christianity the official religion of the empire. He made it legal in the empire, but it mm. was it was later it was uh, it was you know later on uh, that it was made after Constantine that it was made the official religion of the empire. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting too is the discussion around like, I mean, the, I mean, it, it seems to be an ever, what's the word, um, relevant discussion of Christian nationalism, and oh, yeah. you see it throughout Christian history. Um, this kind of the church being in bed with the empire, you know, um, and I don't know if Constantine kind of was like the beginning of that in some ways. It might have been happening earlier. Oh, I think I think it. Well, okay. So in that particular way, you know, and again, you know, there, there's this, there's this saying, uh, I, that, uh, I, I, I can't remember which, which, who, who, what ethnic group to attribute it to, but it's one of the Orthodox ethnic groups that when the church and the state dance together, the state always wants to lead. Mm. So, um, it's, 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 it's never a good thing for, for the church and the state to get too close it's important for them to to stay in their own lanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they can they can they can they can support one another and, and they can you know cooperate. Yeah, but uh, but you know you always have to be careful because because ultimately and it just it just keeps happening over and over again. You know that's just that's just history. I read something about uh, a couple of years ago uh, about the Chinese government. You know because Christianity is just booming in China and they've also really oppressed right oh for sure but yes definitely but this the government is is sort of looking at this and saying well we we don't seem to be able to slow this thing down so they they have proposed or they have established a, a an office in their government to determine how christianity can best promote communist values oh wow <laughs> well but hey you know it's nothing new right i mean that's yeah, I mean, it's no. funny because, like, you know, the state of the state of Christians, like, how are Christians living? It has a lot to do with how is the the um, empire that they're living in reacting to their religion. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at like the Christians before the three hundreds, you know, before Constantine, they were you know thrown in rings with tiger uh, lions and thrown in gal- uh, gladiator fights and mm-hmm. killed and burned at stakes and stoned and uh, in that context and then i don't know i guess it's interesting i've, I've heard all sorts of stories from missionaries in, in china too that have like that have been killed or have hidden churches or whatever so I, I don't know it's interesting to think about um china kind of creating a division where they're at least acknowledging the existence of the christians and, and uh, trying to yeah, see some not, of the not in a good way though <laughs> not in a good way yeah i don't know well, because I because it's of this, lim- killing them. <laughs> it was well, it's be- well, one would hope, one would hope, um, because, um, because you know, because this is another Father Andrew Drummer's opinion only. Uh, but I think if we look, you know, I, 
I don't worry so much that Christianity is not as popular as it used to be. Because if you look at the history of Christianity, and if you look at the, you know, the greatest, the greatest saints, the greatest witnesses to the faith, all come out of times when 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 the church was was facing persecution. Mm. <clears throat> because, you know, when things are going well, there's two kinds of there, there there's two kinds of threats in the life of the, of the church. If you look at Christian history, there's two kinds of threats. There's external threats and there's internal threats. So if you look at, okay, the first, let's say 500 years of Christian history. So for 300 years, there's a clear and present external threat. It's the Romans, right? But when that ends, right, Christianity becomes legal and then eventually the official religion, the external threats stop. And what starts up? The internal threats. And that's the rise of heresy. Mm, yeah true then you get like the the gnostics all of it yeah all of it arius and nestorius and all that stuff so and but you know if you think about it like like an external threat is almost better for us than an internal threat wow that's an interesting way of thinking of it yeah because yeah. Extra, external threats galvanize us internal threats fragment us mm. yeah wow Personal that, opinion only, but that's no. I think you're. I think you're definitely on to something. I think you're right. I mean, I mean, it's so fascinating to apply that today because I feel like Christianity already is fragmented in so mm -hmm. many ways, and, and it makes me wonder if there's a future for unity in some way, shape, or form, or or is it possible, or is it even necessary that like there's some sort of unified, mm -hmm. you know, and or is there unity already? It's just it's in the spirit, and it's not maybe not an appearance or. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Wow, good questions. Um, so I think that we can we can all rest assured that when Christ returns, there'll be unity. So at some point, the divisions end. That's that's for sure. Um, you know, I think that I think that the the struggle that we we have and the reality that we have to we have to um, accept from the New Testament is that there is a church, one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if you look, you know, and if you look at the book of Acts, you know, you, you, we kind of see, we kind of see what, where the apostles were going on this, because you read Acts and, and, and every now and then the gospel has gotten somewhere before the apostles, uh, the Samaritan Pentecost, right? Uh, so already, because, you know, the, the word is out and, and they'll, they'll get, get wind that there are people you know, calling themselves Christians and these yeah, like Cornelius. Yeah. Like just calling themselves. Now is there's Christians there. Well, okay. So what do they do? See, and, and this is, this is the important thing because now the scripture is informing us, right? Well, they, they don't go, Hey, this is great because now that, that, you know, that spiritual union is now getting bigger. We have these Christians. No, they don't do that. They send apostles there and they ask certain questions <laughs> like, okay, first of all, are you baptized? Yes. Into whose baptism? Well, we're in John's baptism. Okay, well, then we need to deal with that because that's 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 not enough. You need to be baptized into Christ. Uh, have you received the Holy Spirit? Uh, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Okay, now we have to do that. The point being that the, that the apostles, you know, demonstrate just, just by their action and their response to hearing about other people calling themselves Christians... <clears throat> that there are markers that 
that indicate, okay, this, this is sort of within the fold and being outside the fold. Because if there weren't markers, the apostles wouldn't have needed to go out there. They would have asked the questions and they wouldn't have responded the way they did. Because when they when when something was out of place, they fixed it. So that and that's that's the book of Acts. That, that's the scripture. That's that's you know, we have to reflect on that when we talk about, about unity and when we talk about the church, that that's what the apostles were doing. You know, it's so funny because it's fascinating because I, I grew up in, you know. I don't know, quote unquote low church. I don't know if that's a term you've heard before, but it's kind of, yeah. you know, it's kind of describing a church that's very much detached from the major branches of mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Protestantism or Catholicism or it doesn't. And, and I grew up in, I mean, one of my churches was Assemblies of God, which is very much yeah. Pentecostal, charismatic. And then we ended up going to a um, non-denominational Pentecostal charismatic church, which my parents still go there. Um, but it's just fascinating. There's a big emphasis emphasis on the experience of the Holy Spirit in those settings. And I always got the sense, I don't know, that there's kind of like this, the Holy Spirit kind of creates this decentralization in a sense where like the Holy Spirit can kind of, um, like God can find people in, in unexpected places or, or in various settings where um, you know, maybe it looks different where they are compared to what's, what's going on there. You know, maybe the, their community looks a little bit different, but the Holy Spirit's still there and working in a, in a way that's specific to that community or whatnot. And, and that's kind of like what denominations end up being in some sense, way, shape or form is like, you have like the churches that work for certain people and then churches that don't, they maybe wouldn't work for some people. So they, they're somewhere else. And maybe that's just where they're called to be. I don't know if that's, I'm sure that's not an orthodox idea, but I always kind of had this sense that um, God's kind of working things out in that way because it's hard to find some sort of centralization of the faith, the Catholic, lower C Catholic faith, you know, Um, especially if, if like, I mean, I would love it if the Orthodox Church had like some sort of like, this is our, you know, um, and they do, I know, but like kind of more advertising in that sense, like, come in and become a part of the church, you know, um, mm-hmm. in that kind of sense. And, and I feel like Catholicism has really done a lot of work to create, do that. And then sometimes not by the best means, sometimes by colonization and whatnot, but um, they seem to, they seem to have like this whole hierarchy system. Not that I believe that it has the authority per se, but, um, but I guess it makes it easier in that sense. Um, so organization, like, organizationally yeah. a centralized authority yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, when one person's calling the shots, then there's, there, you only have to worry about, you know, convincing one person. Yeah, and I was listening recently to an Orthodox pre, uh, father or whatnot. He was talking about how the authority is not in a person, but it's actually in the saints. And that includes all... It's in the community. Yeah, the community, right? The authority, yeah. the yeah. canon of faith is the community of faith yeah. that's been passed yeah. down, right? Yep, precisely. That's a really... I think that's, there's something really, I mean, there's definitely something mystical about that for sure. It's not like, it's just like clear, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's something that, I mean, that's why they had needed the councils, right. To kind mm-hmm. of hash it out and be like, okay, this is what we mean by this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and this, you know, back to your, back to your point about the Holy spirit and, and, and this relates to this because what does the Holy spirit do? The Holy spirit constitutes the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. This is what Jesus says um, in, in the gospel of John 
during you know the supper, I will send the comforter and he will lead you into all the truth. Well, the truth is not an, an intellectual you know thing. The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus. So the Holy Spirit leads us, uh, you know, constitutes, forms us as the truth, as, as Christ. So uh, A, I guess, um, if the Holy Spirit is, and I do believe the Holy Spirit, I, you know, is is working in many different places, uh, you know, out like outside the Orthodox Church, I'm an Orthodox priest, so I'll talk in my context, I believe the Holy Spirit is working outside the Orthodox Church, the Holy Spirit, you know, the Spirit blows where it will. And, and does the work that it will do. But, but what's that? What's, what is the work and what is he doing? Uh, whatever he can to constitute and to bring people together. That's mm -hmm. what I believe. Uh, and that's what the art, that's what the, that's the teaching of, of, of the Orthodox church. Um, but, and everything, and that's why the councils are important because mm -hmm. we come together again, Jesus, where two or three are present in my name, I am in their midst. And, and the Holy spirit leads us into all the truth and that we don't see in history in the ancient history or in this or in the scriptures where one person has that authority it's mm. just not there it's always the it's always the, the body the council you know the very first the very first um uh, re recorded church council is in the book of acts right and it's it, it it it's called the apostles gather together to discuss what to do with the gentiles that want to become christians right because there's that there's yeah. a group that says you got to become jesus is the messiah the jews you got to become a jew before you can become a christian uh and that's and that's tearing the church apart that that's a big deal and my church we're doing uh we're doing a uh bible study right now on the letter to the romans and you know that's huge in there you know the, yeah you know, how, do, how do the jewish you know how do the jewish and gentile christian communities understand each other what is israel what is you know what so that was a big question they gather in council and what's interesting is when they finish their you know their their their, their um deliberations and they they have a statement right they they, they present the statement which which begins with the words it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us and then this is our decision and and, and in the orthodox church every every council the statements end like that it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us this so is this continuity Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I guess just in my low church brain, I'm thinking like, um, how can you, and maybe it's this skepticism in me that's like, how, how do you know that there's the continuity is actually there, you know, um, sure. all the way down 2000 years, you know, um, how, how, how much continuity is there? Is it, is it kind of just an act of faith in some sense of like, you know, or oh, it's, good, great. That's an excellent question. Is there a lot? Is there a lot of reason to it, or is there is there more of like a a faith where you just trust that God has has been doing something? You know, well, there, God has been doing something, and if God has been doing something, then you know the tree by the fruit that it bears. Therefore, we should be able to find evidence of that, and we and we find evidence of that. That's the whole point, right? Um, so one of the things, uh, one of the one of the classes that I've I've done at my church is is kind of like uh, I call it like uh, like. Um, like, 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 like detective work in church history. So, you know, Orthodox Christianity makes the claim that we can, we trace Orthodox faith teachings all the way back to the apostles. So can you do that? Can you actually do that? Can you find documented evidence that says this is what people believed? So I think I, I usually, I usually start in the third century. So around the council of Nicaea and I walk backwards all the way to the apostolic church.
mm. where you you see clear references to the various things does or you know does the church look exactly the same as it did in, in the in the days of the apostles no do you and i look exactly the same as we did when we were children no because you grow and, and you you know you you develop so it doesn't but but it's all there you know the dna mm. <laughs> is there the the, the components yeah. are all there um and and it's there because of the holy spirit so yeah that's the whole point is you can actually you can trace it back mm. and, and you can find it and and this is also i think even in the scriptures you know um to study to really study the scriptures um you either have to know the original languages or have access to somebody that knows them to be able to kind of un unfold certain things unveil certain things that they get lost in translation uh, so one yeah. of my favorite examples of this <laughs> And uh, anybody who's you know who does Bible studies with me, actually even my parishioners, because I because I, I I harp on this, uh, but but every now and then. So one of my one of my favorite examples, and this is a little bit of uh, New Testament Greek grammar. <laughs> so it's a verb. It's a verb. It's a verb tense called the aorist tense. Are you, are you familiar with that at all? The aorist tense. All right, here we go. I can't say that I am. So, no, I'm not. A, all right, I'm not an expert for sure. So, I know. Okay, so the aorist tense. So you know. All right, I'm sorry. So you oh, have no. past, present, future tenses, right? Uh, so the aorist tense is used. Aorist literally means without time. So it's it's used to speak about something of an indefinite duration. Okay. Wow. So you know it's 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 open ended. We have anything like that in English? I, you know, I've, I've tried to think about that. Because we have past, we have present, we have the sub. Uh, we don't really have no. subjunctive in, in English, but we have subjunctive. Because no. I actually, I actually speak Spanish as well, and I use Spanish. Okay. My, but I know a lot about language, but I've never yeah. heard of the aorist tense. Yeah. So the yeah. aorist tense is this is this ancient Greek thing, and it's and it's and it's it's used specifically to keep duration open ended. Hmm. So in the Gospels, when John the Baptist and when Jesus say repent, that verb is presented in the aorist tense. Hmm. so as an open-ended thing like uh, without duration so repentance is framed in the new testament not as a okay you're done you know what it sounds like um in spanish and english and modern language we call it the present progressive tense mm -hmm. keep on repenting yes keep on repent precisely mm -hmm. uh the same thing um in uh in the uh when it says if we confess our sins god is faithful to us right if we keep Conf on confess is in the aorist tense if so it's almost like if we are in the habit of confessing our sins mm. so you know things like that like that really does change you know uh you know the 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 meaning there because suddenly you know you're you're looking at something that's that's being framed as as, as a thing that, that that's in, and expected intentionally being framed as a continuous progress mm. a thing you know that you you go through and again that's not that's not an interpretation that's just the language the language yeah which is yeah i mean that's fascinating because yeah i've heard i definitely have gotten that sense from eastern orthodox faith that that like i've heard callistus Ware talk oh, yeah. about how he was asked like are you saved he's like well not yet but I am, but not yet. Yeah, I'm I am. Saved. I was, I am, and I will be. I, am, I was, I am, and I will be. Like, I'm yeah. being saved, you know? Um, that whole 
concept of being saved is an ongoing thing throughout mm-hmm. your life. The whole process of sanctification, we'd call it in Protestantism. You guys call it theosis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those who are being saved. And of course, all those, and, and all of those, you will find those in the New Testament. You'll, you'll find all three of those that, you know, I was saved, I, I will be saved, and I am being saved are all, are all in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So it's not, again, this sure. wasn't you know, cooked up later on by somebody. Uh, so, so yeah, am I saved? Well, and that's, that, that's a good, that's a good example. That's this other thing that, you know, really, um, I know that the West Western mind can, the Western mind can really have trouble with this when they, uh, when they, when they study Eastern Orthodoxy, because when you study Eastern Orthodoxy, it really is like learning another language. Since you speak another language, you'll be able to appreciate this, that you, um, to learn a language well, you you have to start thinking in that language you Mm. you can't you you know be always sort of translating from the one into the other in your head there's this this code shifting that has to happen oh yeah right so um the you know we can say the same things in eastern orthodoxy the protestantism let's say um we can use the exact same words and mean completely different things salvation being one of them you know like that's you know, justification, all, all those kinds of things. So, so, Let's come, oh yeah. <laughs> but so, so the point being that, that, you know, one of the things, you, you know, that you, that is important to know or, or just stay mindful of as you're learning about the Eastern Orthodox Church is that Eastern Orthodoxy is in fact Eastern, that it comes from a different worldview, different history, a different Mind- mindset. And then even understanding the language within the context of those who spoke it in the day who weren't even Christians per se or. Yes. But- just speaking it and what did those words mean yes and that's like the whole you know whole thing of hermeneutics and whatnot i've actually been you mentioned something before about um interpretation and um i meant because i mean in obviously especially if if not in low church protestantism of all things it's all about me and my bible and uh, i read it and i have a revelation from god mm-hmm. about it and then i share it and whatnot and so there is this idea of like you read your Bible, he reads his Bible, they, she reads her Bible. We're all reading the Bible separately. And then sometimes we get together and have Bible study, but, but mostly it's, 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 there's a lot of um, kind of interpreting yourself or relying on like individual theologians that fit my agenda. Um, mm. And I, I, and I say this because I think I do it myself oftentimes as well like oh wait what does nt Wright say i love nt Wright, you know <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> or what is um i don't know um many other theologians yeah, i got you yeah. you know um so but the whole concept of um i've been thinking about it lately it really doesn't make any sense it makes more sense to it, re- it needs to be understood in the context of the canon right the the what's been passed down like how has this been understood throughout history mm-hmm. um and that I think that's a really important point. Sure, yeah, I really do agree with when it comes to the orthodoxy. There's a there's a saint uh, Saint Vincent of Lorin. He's a, a mid mid third century saint. So this is in the 200s, and already in the 200s, right? They're 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 wrestling with, okay, how do we know what the truth is? You know, because there's different teachings already by then. The Gnostics are you know doing their thing, and and you have the you know the the Orthodox, you know, you have the Christians and you have this and that. How do we know what is the truth? And so St. Vincent's formula is his, you know, his, uh, how how he frames it, which is, which is, this is, this is how the Orthodox looks at it. That which is believed by all believers 
in all places at all times wow. that we embrace as the truth. It's deep. So there it is. You know, yeah. if, if you can see it, if you can find it in different places, if you can, you know, evidence of it in different places, that's the truth. That's why I've been really fascinated in um, looking into learning from like Athanasius, Irenaeus, yep. Gregory of Nyssa is really mm -hmm. fascinating. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously origin, I know like maybe he was condemned or some way, shape or form, but I don't know. I think there's still a lot that we can learn from him, of course. Mm -hmm. I think like biblical interpretation. I, one time I heard it said like, he was like, he's like the guy who invented the sport, but then he got kicked off and now he's not allowed to play anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of interesting. An interesting way of framing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. I mean, yeah, he, um, it is unfortunate that most of his works are lost. Mm -hmm because he was prolific um or they're they re they're reinterpreted by his peers well they, like yeah they're reinterpreted by his peers and you know and there's there's this whole question of you know uh was origin as a person excommunicated or was originism mm. which is what his students did with his teachings yeah you know, was mm -hmm. was that the thing that was that was um so, so there, there are some, you know, there's debates within orthodoxy about, about origin and the validity of, of, of his, mm -hmm. you know, well, like, I mean, like the validity, I mean, there are th things that he said that were clear, obviously, you know, right on target. There were some things that were kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, not every church father hits it, the nail on the head every time. It's funny that's why we, I'm sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but just to finish my thought, though, that that's why we don't rely on any one church father, but it's what all people in all places at all times believe. That's the truth. Yeah, and the truth is that what's fascinating is like the style of interpretation that Origen like kind of coined mm -hmm. has been used all throughout history, right? Sure, yeah. Like the whole mm -hmm. idea of like, what what is the, the view of like looking at scripture as like, there's like a spiritual sense, there's like a moral sense, and there's like, the literal sense yep. Like yep. Literal. what does the page say what is the moral meaning or uh, i'm sure you might yeah it's 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 like it's like the different looking at the at, at that particular passage or, or from different altitudes so there's what did it mean what does it mean on the ground like historically for the people involved and all that what did it mean and then you know what does it mean uh for me in my life how do i interpret this what lessons and then there's like how does this impact then the bigger picture the big picture of, of salvation and god's providence and and and, and the, you know the trajectory that, that that he has the world on yeah because it's pretty mind-blowing when when you start to realize that like a, like people use the phrase like oh everything in the old testament is about jesus yep well it is and it isn't like there's a there's a meaning in that historical moment hmm. you know there's a meaning yeah. in that but then there's something there's another level to it that's meta it's like a meta yeah. level that's pointing yes. to christ so yes like, and you sorry <laughs> uh, yeah and, and see the thing is and so in our western minds and, and i include orthodox people because if you're if you're if you grew up in the west this is how you this is what you're taught in school right so in our western minds okay there are two meanings and the first place we go is well which one is right <laughs> where in in the east in the eastern mind says there are two meanings and we move on you'll see this i mean saint john chrysostom does this when you read his sermons and his, his you know his commentaries on the, like the gospels and other and he'll say uh this passage means this but it, it can also mean this 
or maybe this, and then he just goes on and he, he you know, and he just kind of leaves it like that because it's okay to have multiple layers of meaning mm -hmm. because it is wisdom, right? And it's mm -hmm. wisdom is so deep and so broad that it, it can have multiple layers of meaning. These meanings are not, are not um, at odds with one another. They don't negate one another. So like you're saying about, about the typology, right? Everything they're pointing to Christ in the Old Testament. It's not that they knew that at the moment, mm -hmm. but it's that looking back, you can see it. So if you think about Luke, Luke and Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, right? And, and, and Jesus is walking and he, and he says, and he opened up the scriptures for them to show how all these things concern him. Mm. that you know you look back and you can connect the dots yeah and then like and then they're like and then like oh wait the story of was about yeah. jesus oh wait the story of uh yeah um J jacob all of it yeah. jacob all of it joseph is about jesus you know yeah. it's pointing to jesus ultimately he's the suffering yeah. servant he's the you know it's so fascinating um before we get too deep into the weeds of like ethereal topics let's get back to your story sure so you were in Boston University, mm -hmm. and then I'm sorry I got us on a tangent because I was talking about because I'm really I've really been fascinated about Eastern Orthodox and I've looked into different churches in the area and there's like the Greek one and there's the Albanian one and you know so there's different like ethnic uh, churches so my the reason for bringing that up is because I don't know it's just interesting I wonder what it would be like if I went but I'd love to try it out sometime just check it let out. me know I I know a couple of the I have some connections in in that Orthodox community in that area really in, the, in Worcester so if you want to visit like let me know and I can I can give you some some uh recommendations excellent all right I'll definitely do that for sure um so going forward you went to the Holy Cross <laughs> um Eastern Orthodox yeah. seminary yep and then um where'd you go from there uh, got married. In fact, I got married um, over the summer of my final year of studies there. And then, allowed to get married. yes, yes. In the Orthodox Church, a priest, uh, well, you know, I, I, I like to be very clear about this. In the Orthodox Church, a married man can become a priest. <laughs> no, because there, there, there is a distinction because um, if, 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 a, if a man is ordained unmarried, he has to remain unmarried really yes so you have to choose beforehand before ordination whether you celibacy or marriage wow yeah. that's fast yeah so uh and, and most you know and most orthodox priests are married and typically you know again you don't see this so much in in north america because we're just you know we, our resources aren't or you know the, the pool isn't as big but if you look at um you know orthodox churches in the old countries the married clergy are our parish pastors um they might teach in seminary the the celibate clergy are doing things like administration they are doing things like missionary work you know things where so it's there's there's a bit of a, a division of labor based a little bit based on that and I, I i appreciate that because i think paul kind of leaves it open he's like if i were you i wouldn't get married for the sake of the gospel but yeah if you're gonna if you're feeling burning with passion then get married you know <laughs> yeah well and, and jesus talks about that too you know about the eunuchs you know and the people who make themselves eunuchs and, and that's not we understand that not to be physical that was actually one of origin's stumbling blocks right there as he took that literally so ironic he took all this stuff symbolically then he took that literally but um go figure anyway uh but you know the idea of but and he says he says that's a good thing but it's not for everybody mm -hmm. It's a calling, and if it, if it's if it's a calling, great. Now, any Orthodox church, typically, what happens too is that if 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 somebody if a seminarian says, "I'd like to be celibate," 
you know, we usually take our time with ordaining somebody like that so that they've actually lived a, a, a celibate life for a while to say, okay, are you, are you really sure that this is what you sure. want to do? You know, you don't just sort of do that. A lot of times uh, married clergy will, they'll, they'll, they'll even be ordained in seminary. So they kind of finish up their, you know, studies already as a priest and they go on, but, but for a celibate, uh, celibate clergy, they won't do that. They'll take their time. Yeah. So you got married mm -hmm. and then you finished seminary. Yep. Went to Canada, back to Canada. Um, got ordained a priest. Um, yeah, shortly after getting back, getting back. And um, yeah, I was, um, my first parish was out in Edmonton, Canada. I don't know if you're a hockey fan at all. Really? No, really, never mind. Okay, I just, I just, um, okay. Well, for anybody listening who's a hockey fan, I never, I never cheered for the Oilers, even though I lived in Edmonton. Yeah. Um, I was a Jets fan all the way through. Uh, yeah, so I spent uh, spent six you know, six years in Edmonton. Went back to Winnipeg because uh, that's where our, our central administration was, and that's where the seminary was. So I did uh, seven years, I think it was, of teaching and um, administrative work, serving little parishes, sort of mission tiny parishes at that time. And then eventually, my uh, my wife and I really felt uh, that we we, we wanted we wanted to do uh, more work, uh, sort of more evangelical work with the broader community and because of a number of things uh there were more opportunities for us to do that in the united states than in canada so in 2007 we moved to the states i i, I did work actually administration i was in new york uh our, our our church's national office is on long island so i spent just about three years on long island and in 2010 uh took a back into parish ministry here at saint nicholas cathedral in Fort Wayne. I've been here ever since. Wow. That's cool. that's me. Yeah. So that's past like uh 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. 15 years or so you've been in the States. Yep. Yeah. 15 I years in the States. Um citizen. I've been a citizen for three years, my wife for a year and a half, I think. So oh wow. That's pretty recent. Yeah. yeah, fairly recent. Yeah. Wow. Um amazing. so yeah, and it wasn't like we were like resisting. It just was like one of those things we never got around to. <laughs> it was like, okay, it's time. Let's let's do it. At least it. you did it before the pandemic. Yes, we we both we well actually no. In fact, in fact, no. Uh, I did it. Uh, um, I was oh, wait, I was supposed to take. I was supposed to get. Um, uh, my swearing in ceremony was was like was scheduled for, I think it was like the week after the lockdown. So, but you know, like you find out like four or five months in advance when you're swearing at someone is, and it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm not getting, because, because then it was a lockdown and everything was canceled. So I had to wait a while before they slowly opened, uh, opened up. And it was actually kind of, kind of odd because, you know, usually these, these swearing in ceremonies are these big events, right? And people are there and you get pictures and that, but, but it was still, they were just kind of opening up the offices. So I went down to Indianapolis and it was like me and four other people, and it was really, it was like, welcome to the United States of America. I kind of got sworn in and got my paperwork and they just, okay, now leave, you know, because it was still, we were still like six feet apart, yeah. masks and all this kind of stuff. So it was this kind of surreal, surreal thing. My wife had a better one. Wow. <laughs> the time she got sworn in, she was, uh, she got a, yeah, better well, deal out of it. Oh yeah, so that is pretty recent. Wow. Now yeah, it's pretty I, recent. I've lost track of time. Honestly, I'm stuck in March, 2020. Somebody <laughs> told me that 2020 was the longest month of 2019. And I, that's how it feels for me. Yes, uh, we're still, we're like somewhere in the end of 2020 at this point. Yeah, I think. So I feel. It's still going on, but yeah. now we're entering 2023 and my mind's just like, what? Yep. What, like, yeah, what? When did that happen? 
<laughs> uh, it's kind of we're moving on to three years now. Yeah. Started. Yeah. yeah. But um, wow. Yeah, that's wild. So um, while you got some major editing to do here because we're just kind of having a oh, good no, time no. talking. I, <laughs> I, I let I ship it all. It's not a big deal. <laughs> great. Um, it's all good. Um, my my five listeners love it. Actually, no, I actually had uh like twelve or forty two listeners now. I think uh, some cool. somewhere between forty and twenty. Cool. So far, but anyway, well, you're gonna uh, add one more my, after this. So this is my third. So yeah, one more. <laughs> um. So anyway as you're as you're in the parish um were there any i don't know notable experiences i'm sure you've had a lot but i mean are there any notable ones that um you've had throughout the your years in the parish um working with the people if there's any like my word um (laughs) wow um nothing Nothing really jumps out at me that I could say this because there have been, there have been just many times when you just, you just know, you just know that the hand of God is 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 upon somebody or upon you or upon a, a something yeah. that happens and and yeah and so I, I there you know I I just been I've been so grateful I, you know I will say this though um, and this is probably you know one of the most important things um so i i didn't intend on on coming back into parish ministry the the position i had in the administrative position uh was cut because of funding so i needed i needed some place to go and my bishop said well there's this parish open in fort wayne indiana and i said fort where um so i really i had no idea where fort wayne was um, our plan, my intention was to, to, you know, to go to the States, to go to New York, live in the New York area, work in church administration. And in this, the turn of events that brought me to Fort Wayne, to St. Nicholas, have been the, the best thing that ever happened to me in my, my priesthood. Wow. And, 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 and in my, in my life is a, what I would say is like a, somebody finally trying to get serious about being a Christian. Um, and, and it wasn't something that I planned mm-hmm. or that I, you know, that I had in my framework. It was something that was given to me by God. So I, you know, that shouldn't be surprising because that's basically the entire Bible, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People who, um, you know, uh, end up getting called to go places, and that that they don't understand why they're going there. They'd rather not go there. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, doing things that don't really make sense. <clears throat> that's just that's just how God works with His people. Can you imagine being the guy that was like that heard from God to like, Hey, your donkey, Jesus is going to ride in your donkey. Go, right. uh, take it out there. And yeah, no like, kidding. how did he find out? Like who told him, you know? Yeah. Right. And like, well, and the master has need of it. Okay. You know, <laughs> well, and you, you know, I always think about Zacchaeus, you know? Oh yeah. Hey, Zacchaeus come down from that tree. I have to eat at your place today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much going on there. That's just like, wait, what? That, you know, my name, mm-hmm. you know where to find me. And now I'm, I'm, you know, because of course, when it's like I'm eating there, it's me and you know everybody else. 
and it, and, and it says, you know, Zacchaeus just, he just races down the tree and he receives the Lord joyfully. Mm. Wow. You know, there's no, mm. oh, I don't know if I have enough food. IG, can we maybe do this tomorrow? I'm a little bit, you know, it's just bam. And, and, and there is, there is something really, really uh, important, I think, for us in that story of Zacchaeus about what, what it's like you know how how we need to answer god's call mm. you know that it doesn't have to make sense it doesn't have yeah. to even it doesn't have to be um convenient in our personal you know within our personal framework that's you know something i've you know i i i do I, since since doing my what I'm, I'm calling, I guess now I'm calling it a social media ministry. I, I didn't really intend on creating that, but it, that's what it is. So, which yeah. is cool. And I, I by the I, way, I love the, I love like the flute noise that you have. Do, do, do you do, 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 do. like, you like that is, one? It almost my, sounds like uh, Eastern or like a. Well, that's why. Yeah. My, 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 uh, my son composed that for me. So uh, I'll no let way. him know. Yeah. I'll let him know. That's cool. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite things. Really cool. That's that's it great. It sounds like uh, Asian or something. Or yeah, it's it, it, it's it's called. He calls it Slavonic flute, which is perfect because you know. Um, but cool. uh, so so doing this and and you know I, I every now and then I encounter people who will say you know I I tried Eastern Orthodoxy but I, or I I just doesn't feel right I just don't get it it just doesn't you know it it doesn't sit right with me uh, you know it's not really what I what I want and you know just we just need to remember that there are very few in fact i can't think of one instance in the scripture where god said this is where i want you to go and it's going to make total sense to you and it's going to be exactly what you like and you're going to be absolutely comfortable there yeah i mean otherwise there would be like some sort of like confirmation bias or it would be kind of like a you know like a self-fulfilling prophecy whereas in this way it's like when god kind of just like go and you're just yep. like okay and right. you don't know what's going to happen and then you end up there and mm -hmm. um it kind of it gives you a sense of legitimacy uh, i think mm -hmm. but it's so common in every story right like almost every story almost every mm -hmm. story uh you got abraham uh you got yeah abraham abram leave your yeah. land go this way go this way <laughs> stop, take stop lot you take isaac and kill him okay you know all these things and you know um, um well yeah it just goes on and on and on and and you know jonah you know you know I, I, jonah's great because he's like i'm not going to nineveh no way am i going to nineveh you know and so yeah it's it's just the story through think, and through do you think jesus ever had that kind of experience in his human nature where he was like unsure what the father would do in a moment and but he had to like interact and, and pray to the father to gain that knowledge. And in that sense, like, not that, I don't know, is that heresy? It's not heresy to ask the question. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, I probably the, the closest thing we can, we can say with any kind of certainty that comes to that is when he's in Gethsemane and says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yeah. Um, there's this other, actually, there is another point. There's another point. Um, my bishop, Archbishop Alexander Galitsyn, and if you want to get into some really, really interesting and deep theology and, and you know, mystical theology, theology yeah, you know, find him, find his stuff on, on YouTube. He's been interviewed a number of times, Archbishop Alexander Galitsyn. Uh, but he, he has this very interesting um, 
I thought, idea, interpretation about the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus, when Jesus wept. So Jesus wept, shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. So, you know, we, we always take that to mean his friend Lazarus is dead and he's grieving, he's mourning the loss of his friend. So Archbishop Alexander says he, he knows, because he's God, that by raising Lazarus, that's the first domino that eventually gets him to Golgotha. Because if we, if we read a little bit further on in the gospel, all the people are gathered in Jerusalem because they've heard that he wrote, that he, that he, 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 he rose Lazarus from the dead. And it actually says in there that not only were they there to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus as well. Check this guy out. So Jesus knowing that by, by saying Lazarus come forth, that that ultimately leads to him hanging on the cross that Jesus wept is John's gospel's Gethsemane moment. Um, so he's, he's crying because he knows what's coming in the coming yeah. month or, or I don't know how weeks. long, ago, how long week, weeks, week, right? weeks away. Week. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a week it's away. Wow. Week, yeah. Coming days. Yeah. That's so. really fascinating. It wasn't that he was mourning. Yeah. It wasn't that Lazarus. He Lots, but he was, lot. he was, yeah, he was, he, he knew, he knew, and, and he obviously, he did it, and he could, but, but it's like, he knows what's going to happen, and again, it's that moment of that human, you know, being almost like overwhelmed by the magnitude mm -hmm. of everything that's going to happen. Maybe it's like, it's also like the, yeah, it's like Jesus having this existential moment where he's like, holy cow, we really mm -hmm. did this this time, we I really put myself out there, didn't I? Like I. Well, there's no. He knew there was no going back at that point, because there was yeah. lots of times when you know when he would withdraw, right? He he'd do some kind of miracle. The crowd would get you know worked up into a froth, and and he would withdraw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't the time. That this he time, could... yeah, precisely. This time he doesn't withdraw. He proceeds forward. And it almost could be like both traditions are uh, both uh, trends. Uh, uh, what well, not both, translation both interpretations interpretations could be true because there's this there's this aspect yeah. of humanizing jesus and him um he knew all of our pain just as we know mm -hmm. you know just as he knows our suffering you know? yep. um, yeah that saint john chrysostom that that's one of that's one of the in, in his teaching he says you know and every and everything in the gospels you see both god and man you know you see how 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 divinity how jesus divinity is operating and how his humanity is operating see you mm -hmm. see them both in, in all of it yeah. cool well, I don't know how much more time you want to give, but I, I'd really love to get into a few other topics. Um, it's your podcast, so All right. how much time All do right. you want to do it? I mean, hey, I, I honestly, I could probably go on for too long, but um, <laughs> you know, I guess we'll just start and we'll see where it goes, and sure. if there's any like ever like a finishing point, I'm very much go with the so. flow here. But um, I guess like a really interesting topic for me that I've really been meditating on the past couple of years is um, the Eucharist mm. and what is its meaning? Because I, I find so often that just like unsatisfied with the expert, the Protestant explanations, uh, at least like the more modern Protestant explanations. I know like Lutheran, Episcopalian, Anglican, they have more of a, I don't know, more of a higher mystical view of it. And then obviously, you know, being Protestant, I protest the, the, 
radical view of transubstantiation, or I don't even know if there's even some truth with or some overlap within that in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But I mean, um, first off, yeah, I guess like maybe explain what is happening. What is, mm-hmm. what is the Eucharist? Because I, I, I really, I think I still don't understand it. And right, maybe... So- Maybe we don't understand it. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so if here I need to, I need to begin then with a quick, see, again, here's, here's where we talk about me, you know, using the same words with different definitions. Yep, yep. Uh, I need to begin with a quick definition of the word mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, our classic Western, you know, understanding of mystery is that it's something hidden secret. You don't want anybody to know, you know, it's uh, it's Mr. Jenkins did it and he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those kids and, and their dog, you know, that's a mystery. Uh, that's not how the Orthodox Church defines the word mystery. Uh, in the Orthodox Church, a mystery is something that is just, it is it is completely real, but it's too big for words. In fact, there's, there's a theory amongst linguists that the word mysterion, Greek word, where they get mystery from, uh, comes from the sound you make when you don't know what to say. Right? You go, hmm. Uh, and it's because you just, th- there are things that just, certain things, you know, you just can't, they're just too big for words, there, but they're absolutely real. Um, you know, cr- um, St. Paul calls marriage a mystery. How do the two become one? I had no idea, but I've been married for 32 years and I can tell you that it happens. So, um, you know, love is a mystery. Uh, so the, the Eucharist is called for us as a mystery. So how does bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Sorry, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an audio podcast. That was me shrugging my shoulders. Uh, I have no idea. I got no clue. Um, what I do know is Jesus says, this is my body. And he says, this is my blood. And in the gospel of John, he says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life for my flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed, truly food and truly drink. And we have in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a warning that if we do not approach in a worthy manner, we are guilty of, we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So we have all of that in scriptures. We have ancient Christian writings that clearly identify the Eucharist as being Christ's body and blood. Uh, Justin Martyr, when you talk about different saints that you're reading, pick up Justin Martyr's first apology as well. Um, you know, in there, he clearly states it. It's very interesting because he actually, he describes a, a, a Sunday service, you know, what, what Christians did on Sundays when they went to church. And he talks about the bread and wine being brought out and it being blessed and that we believe it's the body and blood of Christ. And that, that, that by, you know, by, by the operation of this, the, this Holy Spirit that, that becomes, see again, the spirit constitutes the body. So by the Holy Spirit, it becomes, it becomes Christ's body and blood. So it, for, for the Orthodox, it's just one of those is statements that we, you know, we take, we take Christ on his word and we take, again, that which is believed by all people in all places at all times. Well, certainly if you look at the first thousand years, the first 1500 years, even that's that, that's one of those things clearly. Um, so what does it do? Well, I mean, it, it, it's called in the Orthodox Church, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, another early church father, calls it the medicine of immortality and the antidote to death. It is the way that we 
that we quite quite literally and physically receive Christ, that we that we partake, we become one with Christ. You know, meals throughout history and throughout humanity, meals are always uh, used as 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 um, symbols. As, as gestures of, of, of union, of commonality, you know, to break bread with somebody. The word companion, that's what it means to break bread, to, to share in bread. Uh, if we go back to, if we go back to Emmaus, right, we're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is, un, you know, revealing the scriptures. And then how that passage ends is it says, they, they get to Emmaus, they get to the house where Luke and Cleopas are going. And it says, Jesus makes like he's going to keep going. And they say, no, 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 you have to stay and you have to eat with us. And so it says Jesus sits with them. And then what he it's fascinating because he uses the exact same formula, the exact same um, uh, um, pattern as, as at the supper, at the Lord's Supper. He took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And then he disappeared from them. And that's when they realize this is the risen Christ. And we, un, we, and, and it's, and what do they say that we, we knew him not on what he taught us on the, on the road. We knew him in the breaking of the bread. And so we, we interpret the road to Emmaus. And again, this is a good idea of what you're talking about, because we, we're not saying that that was, that didn't happen, but we're saying that, so there's that meaning, but then the, the higher meaning is this is, this is the liturgy. We do this every Sunday. We gather together, we hear the scriptures, we hear that unfolded, and we, we gather at the table, we break the bread and encounter Christ in the breaking of the bread. It also, uh, you know, says that he disappears from their presence at that moment. Well, okay, what's that all about? I was just listening to Father John Bear, another really great, great uh, Orthodox uh, theologian. I love Father John Bear. He's so cool. awesome. He's great. And, and I just heard him talk about this, actually. And he said, why did Jesus disappear? He didn't disappear. He was present in the bread. And he went into them? Through the bread. Wow. That, that's really... He, see, we knew him in the breaking of the bread. Knew him. And, and it's not... Um, there's two different words for no, right? Yep. There's gnostos and there's oida. Yeah. I know a little yeah. bit of Greek. Well done. <laughs> oida yeah, is just so, head knowledge. Yeah. And then gnostos or whatever. It's here. It's a heart Really knowing. We knowing, knew him. Yeah intimately intimately we knew him deeply in the breaking of the bread yep bingo so that's that's why and you see he's so he says every time you do this do this in memory of me um you know keep doing it there's also this uh in acts uh chapter two after pentecost that the the apostles continued steadfastly or the the, the, the believers the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and it usually says uh breaking of the bread fellowship and prayers. So another little Greek lesson here is that in Greek, there's a definite article before each of those. So it's in the apostles doctrine, in the breaking of the bread, in the fellowship, and in Greek, the word is kinonia, which is communion, and in the prayers. You see the doctrine, the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, the prayers, that's the community. That, and that, and that is, it's all in the Eucharistic community. And the definite article makes it like a continuous, like this is established. Yeah, now. well, and it's the, so it's like, speci it's a specific kind of breaking of the bread we're talking oh, about. Yeah. It's a specific kind of communion, excuse me, and the prayers, it's a specific 
said of it prayer. wasn't just breaking of bread just in general it yeah. wasn't just prayers in general it's right it's the, the prayer yeah but and again that's not and that's just days. that's what that's the text that's the text being yeah. the text and what would the prayers be that day that would be um you know the our father the lord's well, prayer it would be it would be the prayers it would be the prayers of of of, of the ancient eucharist really it would be those prayers and you know and those were so go ahead well i was wondering like do we have we have ancient prayers like well, from, yes we do from the first church uh didache read uh, so look for the didache the didache, the didache yeah. yeah and and in there there is uh the, one of the things in there is actually uh a, a very sort of short fragments of ancient christian eucharistic prayers yeah for anybody who doesn't know the didache is like the first like doctrinal like mini mini like book basically to that was meant to like share with Christians in the first century, right? It was written. Yeah, so it's 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 dated sort of. Uh, it's a compilation of of, of writings. Uh, the 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 earliest of them go back to 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 the to the late like first century. In fact, they they predate some of the of the New Testament books. So it goes that far back, and it's believed to have been a manual for newly baptized Christians. A manual, like like yeah. kind of like a catechism. Yeah. Or, so here's what early, you need to know. Oh, you're, early you know, catechism. Oh. You're a, you're now you're a Christian. Here's what you need. To, here's what you need to know. Because it begins, it begins by saying there are two ways: the way of life and the way of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. So you know, it's it's okay. Here's what you need to know. But in there, you have you have the uh, you know a, an example of of ancient Eucharistic prayers, um, and and it's fascinating. And actually, what's also interesting is that in the in the the first three centuries, while you know the canon of the New Testament is still kind of forming, you know people start start looking back at first century documents to say what are, which of these are scriptural. There were certain people who believed that the Didache should have been included in the New Testament canon. That would have made a different New Testament. I can. I think it that. would have. I mean, I because it wasn't until maybe two months ago that I even learned that the Didache existed. Yeah. Uh, and when I read it, I'm like, wow, this is really short, concise to the point. Very, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's like if you have this in, in tandem with the Nicene Creed and Chalcedon, like you have a pretty good, solid foundation of belief, yep. faith. Yeah. And again, that's that is, you know, that is written within apostolic times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that um, is why. Yeah. It's very, it's very Jewish too. The whole sure. idea of two ways, like the way of life and death uh you hear that all throughout deuteronomy right and absolutely so well yeah and that's you know that's that that's a whole other a whole other topic is you know is is that in the orthodox church you know we and, and this is very much played out in in hebrews and in romans you know that you know we, we like we don't believe in dispensationalism yeah you know that that for us like we are this is israel i'm a recovering dispensationalist are you okay Okay. not by choice it was just what Do i have to say like hi welcome or something like that now that <laughs> yeah hi hi welcome how many years has it been since i've uh it's been yeah. it's been like a year and a half two years since right. i've detoxed, detoxed. oh that's that's not a historical position of the church yeah no and it's not and less and so than the, the, less than 200 years old yeah the we that israel the, and the earliest christians the earliest Christians were Jews who understood themselves to have lived to see the coming of the Messiah, correctly understood. 
Uh, but even then, when when the Gentile Christians are being, you know, grafted in, that's the that's the word that that's the language that Paul uses, are grafted onto that, that everybody is still considered a child of Abraham, you know, a descendant of Abraham. That this is all part of that lineage. That just that we are in this, we are the Israel that has now had the had the 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 advantage of of the Messiah coming. And really unfolding all of this, really revealing what all of this means, giving us the broader understanding of all of these things. You know, but, Roman, sorry. Oh, sorry, Romans, I was just thinking like Romans 11, when Paul talks about how like um, the Jews will kind of be left aside and like basically um, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, mm -hmm. it kind of is prophetic to see like in a way like Christian Christianity really has been taken it's largely a gentile religion mm -hmm. i mean obviously there's still jewish roots and there's still jewish christians but you, i don't know i guess maybe because also like ethnic judaism ethnic jewishness versus like religious jewish um it's kind of interesting murky because like it's like it's an ethnicity it's also a religion it's like um but it's also like mixed in with sure all yeah, and actually, that that's that goes back to what you were talking about about Byzantium and about sort of church-state things. That see, th this even predates Christianity because that is actually part of the story of Israel, even in the Old Testament. You know that you know you are we are God's people. We like want our we, we yeah. Well, or like we want our own king. Well, you have a king. I'm your king. God is your king. Yeah, but we want a king like those guys have over there. Uh, yeah. You know, so so. Right. So like, I mean, that that's that goes all the way back to, to Israel. Mm, that, yeah, that, that very struggle and that very, you know, pattern and those very dynamics. So we were talking about the Didache and the reason we we're talking about the Didache yes. is mentioned something about the Eucharist in there. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's it says when you when you when you break the bread, when you celebrate the Eucharist, say these prayers and it, and it gives a prayer. OK, but it's interesting because see, see at that point still. You know, the, everything is still forming and crystallizing because that 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 seg segment ends with it saying, "But prophets can offer the offer thanks as they wish." So, still at that point, there was a little bit more fluidity going on in terms of these prayers. You kind of, you, but you sort of by the time you get to the late second, early third century, you know, these things become much more locked in. Mm -hmm. Kind of before I forget this thought, because I was thinking before, um, is there like a kind of covenant theology in in order in Orthodox? um christianity where there's kind of like this understanding of covenants changing or whatever like the old covenant the new covenant there's kind of that's kind of like a uh another option other than dispensationalism in modern protestantism yeah so so the the thing about covenants is is you know that that if you if we you know really are paying attention in the in the old testament you know the the first i've heard called the first testament which i think is kind of almost better because yeah. which actually connects to exactly this um, you know, God, God makes a whole bunch of covenants with Israel. In fact, that's, that's part of the, part of the thing is, you know, he keeps making these covenants and they keep breaking them and then he, okay, we'll do this again. And so there's actually more than one covenant. So when we talk about the old covenant, that's not quite accurate because he keeps covenanting, you know? Um, so, so really there, there is, there is a covenant, you know, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And 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 how how that finally kind of you know plays itself out, how that is finally revealed is in Christ. So this new covenant, see in Eng again in English and in the West, 
especially in, in modern times, we think, you know, new versus old. Well, we were getting close to the, you know, to, 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 to the uh, end of the year out with the old in with the new, right? Old means uh, old means uh, obsolete. obsolete. New is the new thing. Right. Um, see, but that's, that's, or it's, that's like, it's like building blocks, right? Like it's correct. Built, it's fulfilling. Precisely. Yeah. So the, fruition. Yep. The old covenant is, is a foundational covenant. The new covenant is is simply the fulfillment of the old covenant. It's it's not something that sweeps that covenant away, but it brings it, like you say, to perfection. And then looking backward with hindsight, now we see how that works. You know, yes, that hindsight, correct. Twenty twenty. Yep. We see the layers of meaning. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Very fascinating. I mean, which again, that's the road to Emmaus and opening up the scriptures to Luke and Clue. I I love that. Um, Brad Jerzak has a great book on that mm-hmm. about the the Emmaus way. Mm, yeah okay yeah um yeah so uh what was i gonna say uh yeah so back to the eucharist you were telling me you're giving me a kind of like a scriptural foundation yeah. of it, the in the canon of faith how, how yeah. it's understood so what's going on um what what um i guess like um i guess how does it differ from the catholic uh eucharist I think our theology is is very close. Really, um, although we do not have that that same uh, you know we don't have the, the the theology of transubstantiation because we just don't. And this I know this drives some Western people and thinkers and minds crazy, but we just don't. We just don't. Almost like look, God, Jesus but I'm says it is out of it. Sorry, I feel like they've made a science out of it. Like oh now well, it's, yeah, yeah. done the magic yes. spells. Now it's now it's the body. Of- Whereas you're you're kind of just saying it's mystery, you know? Yeah, it's mystery. It's, it is it's, body of it's bread, but it's also the body of Christ. It's yeah, wine, and, also blood. Yeah, that's that's it. And and the, the Christ, you know, is fully present in the bread and in the wine. Um, and and how? Well, that's you know, that's that's God's. That's you know, through the Holy Spirit, because again, it's the Holy Spirit that constitutes the body of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us into to an encounter with Christ. And 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 that's that's you know that's okay for us. We we're we're okay with that. We don't, you know, we don't necessarily need to be able to 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 be you know get to the minutiae of exactly how this happens. There's a great uh, uh, modern Orthodox writer, Father Barnabas Powell, who who talks about this. And he's got this video series called Journey to Fullness, and he talks about mindset matters. And he says, you know, in the Western mindset, you know, are, are very much our our approach to things is let's take this thing apart and see how it works right mm-hmm. and in the east it's let's step back and watch it and see what it does mm-hmm. so you know we don't we don't need in the eastern mindset we don't need to know all the the details of it for it to be real you know that seems like an overarching mindset to even when it comes to scripture too like, like scripture doesn't have to be a textbook right no. it's not a science book it's not it's you read it there's some uh mystery involved and it also has multiple meanings layers to it mm. that can be understood and revealed through the holy spirit yeah. and through the canon of faith and there's kind of a it's not like uh it's not like i'm reading a textbook and it's kind of a similar kind of thinking um where in the west we're very scientific mm-hmm. and observe yeah we have yeah to- we we like ducks to line up nice and straight and <laughs> We do it. I mean, I mean, Orthodox, like I say, Orthodox who who go to school in the West, you know, that's that's how our minds, you know, that that's how we've been trained to to think as well. And so it's it's 
it's a challenge for for us too. Uh, but yeah, you, the, the the ducks don't have to line up. Not 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 everything has to make sense. And again, you know, because ultimately we're talking about communion, which is relationship. We're talking about relationship. So okay, do you need to be able to absolutely completely understand everything and and even agree with everything uh, that somebody else does? Uh, or thinks in order to have a meaningful relationship with them? Well, no, of course not. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have I have three sons, mm-hmm. and there are things that they do and say that I have just com- are completely beyond me. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are things that I do and say that are totally beyond them. You know. Um, but those aren't deal breakers in us loving each other and having a relationship, right? Because because we, we don't need to completely get each other. We yeah. completely agree with each other. We have to we have to love each other. I was thinking the same thing because I have younger kids. One's five. One's almost two. And the same mm-hmm. thing. Like they don't understand everything. They don't understand me. No. Um, no. But but we have a deep connection and love for yeah. one another, and it mm-hmm. goes beyond words and kind of goes into like the. The mystery, the apophatic yeah. aspect of it. For sure. Maybe you can explain a little bit what what is apophatic. Okay. Like Ap- cataphatic, right? Apophatic and cataphatic. Okay. Um, so apophatic theology is exp- it's described. This is gonna sound a little bit weird. So you just you, your listeners have to stay with me for a second okay. otherwise you're only going to have 39 listeners um we're on the edge of our chairs <laughs> so apophatic theology is is basically that it is safer to explain what god isn't than what god is hmm. okay so the idea being and, and if you when you attend an orthodox liturgy uh you know you will you will hear in some of the prayers the the the, the priest reads where god there's this list of traits of god and it's uh, immortal, indescribable, and in- uncontainable. Uh, and you see, and those are all not statements, right? They're all negative. They're all negatives. And it's not like we're being negative about God, but it's like, it, it's, it's safer. It's like safer territory to say what, what God isn't than what he is. Because every time you say what God is, you are containing him, containing him, containing him. Mm. But when you stick to what God isn't, then you're leaving it you're leaving it open for God to be God. So the only is statements we get into are the is statements that are revealed to us in the scriptures. Is love. <laughs> God is love. God is merciful, right? God is right. But everything else, we prefer, we lean towards apophatic, what God isn't statements, okay. because it's safer than containing him in a box. Wow. That's really cool. So the apophatic is kind of, wow. So how does that, but is there, there's something experiential about that too or um well yeah i mean i mean it's all like i thought it had to do with something with experience but maybe not well i mean how it's how it is experiential is because we don't need we don't need to know Again, we don't need to know in our heads everything about God. We can't. It's impossible. And we, and it doesn't matter because because what we need to do is we need to be able to perceive God in our hearts. You know, God is not meant for us to be apprehend to be comprehended, but to be apprehended. You know, he's not he Metropolitan Callistos where uh, I'm I'm going to mess the quote up a little bit, but the God is not the subject of our of our study, but the cause of our wonder. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's great. That's wonderful. 
Um, so, so that's, that's God. And so that's why you can, you can get into apophatic statements and be talking about all these things that God isn't and go, and it's awesome. I've heard that, that that's actually a Jewish understanding of God too. They, they talk a lot about who he's around it to get to the point, you know, sure. to, yep. to because we are Israel. Yeah. Wow. That's really neat. And then cataphatic, what's the difference? What's that? So cat, cataphatic is what God is. Well, he is. So a cataphatic statement is God is love. That's okay. that's a cataphatic statement. Wonderful. Cool. And that's more, I guess that's more, it's what we can safely say that he is. Yeah, the things that we can safely say because because they've been revealed to us. We know we the only is statements are the ones that, that have been revealed to us. Um, and, and also always understanding that we'll, there'll always be more apophatic statements than cataphatic statements because it's impossible for the creature to completely know and explain the creator. Mm, wow that's neato so we talked a little bit about the eucharist you know i'm still it's still a mystery to me you know but yeah me too (laughs) right right it's supposed to be right yep um what is happening you know what is happening in in the um when we receive it can we can we say that what what cataphatically can we say i guess i don't know okay sure uh what is happening and you know what i'm just And I'm looking at the time. I'm, I'm going to have to wrap up because it's getting okay. close to 10. But what is happening when we receive the Eucharist? Well, sorry? Is oh, it 10? it's nine, almost nine. Nine. Okay, it's feeling like 10. I, I still haven't, I have, I haven't sprung forward or fallen back yet. Okay. Never mind. It's almost nine. Anyway, um, where was I? What's happening? Well, you know, here's the thing about communion. You don't... Oh my gosh, it's it's I'm gonna it's it's cataphatic because it's it's not something that you really you there's there's so much that you 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 get from it when you when you're receiving it, but when you haven't received it for a while, you feel its absence. Have you experienced that yourself? Yeah, I have. I have. Um, you know, I've been. Uh, I was. Um, yeah, and in fact, during COVID, because back you know back at the beginning of COVID, you had to do these 14 day you know, the 14 day quarantine. Oh yeah. So that's, that's two weeks. And, and early on uh, in January of 2020, all five, of, we, we had all three of our kids were home and all five of us got COVID at the same time. So that was actually good. Cause we all got it at the same time and everybody was, you know, nobody had any kind of a severe case or anything like that. So that was good, but it was 14 days. So I missed two Sundays and, and I, you know, and it was like, wow, you know, like the first Sunday was kind of, Okay, but missing two Sundays in a row. By the time I got, you know, out of, out of quarantine and could get back to church on that third Sunday, it was like, man, I am ready for this. I'm wow. so ready. And it's not just the taking of, it's not just the taking of the elements, but it's also like the, what leads up to it and what the, what comes after it, right? In, in the whole Sure, story. yeah, yeah. And, and that's, 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 another, and, the, that's a, and also the act of doing it together, right? It's yep. not something be something that's done individually right correct yeah that it's it's all there are only in the earth in the orthodox liturgy there are only two i statements in the entire liturgy everything excuse me everything else is a we statement um because liturgy means common work and um yeah and this is why also we don't you know we don't talk so much in orthodox christianity about at what moment does the bread and wine become the body and blood of christ because the entire eucharistic prayer and really the entire liturgical journey it, it is a as a you know a contained unit right so everything kind of flows one into the other um to to enter into the spirit enter into christ and and, and to encounter to uh 
to to experience him and then certainly you know we are fed in the eucharist we are we are nourished uh again saint john chrysostom says it beautifully uh, he, you know, he was preaching in Antioch. It was it, it, this massive cathedral, and it had these huge stairs going up to the front doors, and homeless people would 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 sit on the stairs begging. And so uh, Saint John Chrysostom said that it is, it is unthinkable for us to receive Christ in the Eucharist in church and ignore him on our steps when we leave. So wow. the idea being, yeah, right. Uh, so so the idea being that you know the reason why we are fed by Christ in the Eucharist is so that we can take him into the world. Wow. Yeah. And, and to help us, you know, being fed by him and, and having this, this inner uh, healing that goes on uh, because of the, because of the, of our participation that we are able to not just take him into the world, but recognize him more clearly in the world. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about that passage in John 14, where he says, greater things will you do yep. if I, Greater things will you do than I have done. And Jesus did all these amazing things. Yeah. I, I think we don't take that seriously enough. Mm -hmm. That whole concept of uh, what does that even mean? Like yeah. greater things. Uh, and and maybe it's like, you know, in taking that that Eucharist and, as a body together, yeah. um, there's something like something spiritual, some sort of spiritual power is being imparted. For and sure. it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, to think myself, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life and I've never regularly taken Mm -hmm. uh eucharist or we call the mm -hmm. communion obviously but like we do it once a month it was a monthly thing and i and the past few years i've been like this doesn't really make much sense that we do it once a month it should be doing something every time we gather mm -hmm. uh, and i wonder if like you know if there's like is there's is there some sort of aspect of like is there some sort of level of spiritual power or something that i'm missing because of not um receiving um, Eucharist on a regular basis. It's very fascinating. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not qualified to say what's going on in your heart. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we, you know, what we, what we do know, certainly as an, as, as an Orthodox Christian, what I know is that, is that it is the Eucharist that gives us, um, that nourishes us and feeds us for our walk with God. And, mm. and that the, the more, you know, the more that we can enter into that, because it's, you know, it's for us, it's not even just every week. I mean, if there's a holy day, you know, a feast day, we have, we celebrate the Eucharist. So it's, uh, you know, Father Thomas Hoppe said that the, uh, or maybe Father Alexander Schmemann, uh, one of them said, you know, the Christian lives, lives their life from Eucharist to Eucharist, from liturgy to liturgy to liturgy. Um, because the other thing about the liturgy and about the celebration of the Eucharist is that in the Eucharist, you know, the broken body, the shed blood, we enter into Christ's eternal victory over sin and death. And if you, you know, in the Orthodox Church, we don't, we don't actually have any kind of teaching, preaching from the book of Revelation. That was the one provision when... Yeah, the, they were kind of like, the they were kind of, um, hesitant to receive the... Yeah, the because it's, it's so ambiguous, right? Like, we, you know, what is the teaching? But... When you go to an Orthodox church, if you if you you know are familiar with Revelation, especially the visions of, of worship in heaven, you can clearly see that it's Revelation unfolded in liturgy. So so that the Eucharist is also is 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 this thing, and really primarily it's it's a celebration of the reign of God, of the rule of God, mm. 
And in that we are, we, you know, so we offer God bread and wine in thanksgiving, in gratitude. And, you know, when we, when we worship God, we should, we should never go empty handed because, you know, worship is offering. So, so many people, you know, I didn't get anything out of the service today. Well, that's okay. Cause we weren't worshiping you. So don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're worshiping you. Yeah. That's great. You know, um, so, uh, you know, but, and, and the thing about making offerings to God is that God takes those offerings. He blesses them and gives them back to us. Whenever we offer, you know, right. So he's, Jesus says, anybody who's willing to lose their life for my sake will receive it. Any, anytime we make an offering to God, he doesn't just take it from us and, and hold on to it. He takes it, he blesses it and gives it back to us as something even greater than it was before. So we give him bread and wine. We give him physical food. And by his blessing, he gives it back to us as, as this, this, this spiritual nourishment. There's this other really uh, amazing thing, um, and this is this all centers around uh, again the idea of offering and 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 um, the offering of Christ on the cross and uh, the sacrifice. And and if you really want to get into this, um, Father Stephen DeYoung, uh, his book "The Religion of the Apostles" is is an excellent excellent source for for what I'm. He's a uh, reformed, right? Uh, or Father or, Stephen or, DeYoung. Oh, you know, I'm thinking of a different Stephen DeYoung. There's a Stephen yeah. Young who's like a Calvinist, like a. Well, he's not a Calvinist. He's, he's uh, a different, different, different yeah. person. I think he's a Calvinist. I don't know. Okay, so funny. Father Stephen DeYoung, and and so you know, and you know, one of the things in the religion of the apostles that he that he, he points out is that is that okay in the ancient in in the, in the ancient sacrificial system, this was certainly true of Israel, but it was also true of pagan sacrifices as well. It wasn't the killing of the animal that was the sacrifice, because the sacrifice, like if you look at the if you look at the Old Testament, the altar was a giant barbecue. Yeah, it you was know? like the giving of the good stuff, the fat, correct? And the stuff that was like yes. really valuable. That was killing the killing the animal was necessary, right? <laughs> but the offering was the meal. Yeah, because again, meals are signs of affinity, communion, right? Fellowship, right? So you make the sacrifice. And you you offer this meal. This fascinating language, you know, in, in in Hebrew about this this idea of the sweet aroma, uh, you know, ascending to God. So it's like that, you know, if you think about, yeah, like you know when you walk or like when you walk into the kitchen and, and your favorite food is cooking and you go, oh yeah, and it kind of you, you know. So it's like you want to get you want to like get God into like that kind of good mood, and then we're going to ask him for something, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that's that's the idea. Is is you have the sacrifice and you offer this meal to God. But you see, one of the things that happens in Christ as part of His messianic ministry, as part of His His, his ministry of salvation, is everything gets inverted and turned around. So what happens is that number one, uh, the meal happens before the sacrifice, mm. right? The night before He's given he, the, sac yeah. the the offering, the, the meal before He dies. But the other thing is that in the ancient system, it was the people offering food to god and in 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 the christian eucharist it's god saying take eat drink of this all of you god offers us food mm. so there's it's this converted whole, it's yeah there's this whole it's no longer us here. giving up yep. for god but rather god giving up for god and us like yep. <laughs> yeah wow. yeah yeah absolutely so so all of that is is represented not represented symbolic, you know, but represented. We, um, yeah. I, I'm gonna, it's, you know, using kind of like, like 
like internet language, we kind of log into this thing that happens because the, okay. the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, when it says that it happens once for all, that doesn't mean just like it's once and it's finished. But the idea is that the, that it, that that sacrifice reverberates. Yeah, it reverberates through history and it, it reverberates forwards and backwards through time. Mm. And out of time. <laughs> and out of time. So, so, so that, you know, that when we celebrate the Eucharist, that this is our, our, our participation in that sacrifice and a very same sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which stretches out across time. Yeah, I mean, there's this mysterious statement that Paul makes Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. Correct. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was always the plan. Um, it was, it's like, or it's, it's like his sacrifice because God is eternal and does not exist within time, but outside of time. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. him becoming incarnate, almost like created him in a space and time mm -hmm. uh, to be like a temporal being in, in one moment, like just almost just to like make a point in a sense. Uh, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's a mystery. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, well, and again, it's 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 the and 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 you know, back to Greek. I mean, you know, there are these two different words for time: chronos and keros. Chronos is chronological time, seconds, minutes, hours, days, but keros time, K-A-R-R-O-S, kairos. If you're doing the Erasmian translation, um, that's a different kind of time. That's that's God's time. Yeah, you know, that's time Eternal. out. Sorry, eternal time. Eternal time. Yeah, time outside of time, if you will. It's like eternal life. Yeah, Ionius life would be yeah, like Ionis, right? Exactly. That would be like Karis. So, so, so the so the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is is both something that happened in chronological time, but also in that Karis time, which stretches it out across time. Yeah, that that's wild. I mean, there's a lot to chew on there, and absolutely the whole, the whole aspect of like the meal too uh in the bar i've heard that recently like the whole concept of the sacrifice being a barbecue mm -hmm. and, and like other cultures it's not that foreign like they do barbecues no. and imagine like you get this nice beautiful brisket and and you cut off like the big juicy part with all the flavor and you, you give it to god that is yep. a sacrifice, that is. A sacrifice. See, it is because because of course these are things that you have you have raised them you have you know put put resources into you know in, into and yeah and, and of course the other thing about the sacrifices was you didn't give them the, the the scrawny one you gave them the best one oh yeah so so mm -hmm. that those were real real sacrifices that was really meaningful and then you know you have jesus who's the best sacrifice possible yep absolutely um, but god who's doing the giving yep not yes. us and that's that's the beauty of like the the expression of love in the cross and i and that kind of gets us into the atonement a little bit it's like uh the cross is the ultimate expression of god's love mm -hmm. yes wow yeah and absolutely yeah he he dies he dies to be with us in every place that we are uh there is where it says in hebrews it's extremely important that he dies outside the camp you know he dies as one who is out on the fringes and this for us is is is, mm. is part of the our our theology of the cross is that Christ is present with humanity in all of its experiences, even the worst, even the most um desolate. Mm. So so that he can fill every human experience with his healing love. So that wherever we go in life, Christ not only has been there, but in Kairos time is still there with us yeah i mean and the implications of this like ethically too i've really been thinking about this a lot like 
I often ask the question to myself, like, where is, where would, if Jesus was here today, like, where would he be? And we wouldn't be in, like, the suburb and, like, um, you know, housing in the nice, pretty neighborhood, predominantly mm-hmm. white neighborhood, be like in the ghetto, he'd be, mm-hmm. he'd be poor. And it's just like, I guess it's, it's so, I mean, this is a totally different topic altogether, but like the co-option of, of Christianity to be like a predominantly rich white mm-hmm. in America, um, you know, it's, it's kind of sad when you really think about it. But I mean, that's another topic altogether. But but the but back to the atonement, like the layers. There's so many layers to it mm-hmm. that it's like you we don't we don't really understand it, and we, we try to turn it into like some sort of uh, yeah. And, and I, I like I like to think about it as like each like atonement theory is like just like another color on the palette, and it's like it's mm-hmm. a or a mosaic, the mosaic of atonement theories and whatnot. No, I yeah I I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think for no. I mean for us, it's he he dies. You know, he dies out of love. Um, he you know the idea that that the father could be could be angry enough to want to see his son die for us is just unthinkable. It's just yeah. it's just unthinkable that uh, that that he comes to be with us. And it's and Paul it's it's again it's you know, like us in every way except sin, mm. in every way including death. But mm-hmm. when when death takes Christ, it takes more than it bargained for. It takes the Lord of the life, and when the Lord of life is among is is among the dead, death is overthrown, and that's yeah. the that's the final victory. Like that Christus Victor kind of idea. Yep. Precisely. Um, man, there's so many things we get into, but but real quick, just yeah, we're short... gonna have to wrap up right right away. But, but yeah, but so yeah. one more. <laughs> we'll okay. have to do this again. If, if I were to give uh, I, one more. Okay, I won't even get into um, other atonement things. I have a quick question because I run in circles with a lot of various different views and whatnot. And and you made a, a video um, a few months back about um, kind of addressing the idea of universal salvation and whatnot. And I found it really fascinating that you that you addressed it. I thought it was like really brave of you because like a lot of people just ignore it or they just say, yeah, stop being a heretic or whatever, you know? Um, so I guess like the idea, um, I was curious, like, what what is what is the concept, the Eastern Orthodox conception of hell? Um, what is the okay. experience that in the experience of hell too? Right. Okay, that's great. Um, so this, you know, when people say, well, what's what's the difference? This is this is probably the biggest difference between Orthodox Christianity and and any of the Western Christian traditions, uh, because in the Orthodox Church, we believe that heaven and hell are the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that they are actually not places at all, uh, but they are ways of experiencing the the presence of God. Mm. So, and I think, see, I think this is where, uh, to be honest, and, and again, this is, again, this is my opinion only, this is my observation. I think this is where, where some confusion happens with, with, with our Protestant friends when it comes to the, the teaching of universal salvation, because, um, this, this Western understanding of heaven and hell is that in heaven you're with God and in hell you're in this place without where God isn't. You're with the devil, let's say, right? Yeah. So in heaven you're yeah. with God and in hell you're... you're the torture you're, chamber underground somewhere. Yeah, you've been abandoned by God, right? <laughs> yeah. So you read the church, the, the, the Eastern church fathers and everybody's with God. Mm-hmm. 
So from this from this Western frame framework, well, if everybody's with God, everybody's in heaven. Yeah, right. They are, and they're not. <laughs> right. So so uh, how we so uh, the the teaching of the Orthodox Church is that er, yes yes everybody gets to be with God, mm -hmm. but not everybody's going to be happy being with God. Yeah. Because because there are those who who in their entire lives very intentionally rejected God. And rejected his love and rejected anything to do with him intentionally mm -hmm. uh you know there are a couple of uh church fathers that say that hell is only for those who refuse to repent you know that so it's a very intentional rejection of god mm -hmm. are going to also experience the, the love and the, the the presence and the glory of god but they are going to experience those things as things that they cannot take part in because of the the, the choices that they have made in their own lives mm -hmm. And 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 see that's that you know the, the, that idea of the worm that never stops eating. Well, it's the realization that that I'm I am you know I am alienated from this. I have alienated myself from this. I have nobody to blame but myself. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I I definitely gravitate towards that understanding of hell for sure because the idea of separation doesn't really make sense if in, in Corinthians in fifteen. First uh, Corinthians or fifteen, when mm -hmm. Paul says that ultimately God will be all in all. Yeah, precisely. How, how can there be another place? Right, and, and, and the Psalms I'll, talk I'll about just this. Say real quick, that um, you know, my friend that I was talking to, he was saying that because I was kind of asking him like, what questions would you ask? And he was saying like he doesn't agree with the Eastern Orthodox idea of hell because the whole con, the whole point of um. The whole point of the the evil people being quarantined in the new creation is for our is because it would make heaven so much better for us basically like the whole idea of them being they're elsewhere they're they're they're, they're quarantined they're outside the city in that sense um if we were going to think about it kind of like metaphorically because mm -hmm. you know you have the new jerusalem city and they're outside the gates mm -hmm. um i wonder that kind of takes away our compassion, you know? And, and I wonder, like, does God stop pursuing them? <laughs> like, well, okay, so love stop I, think, pursuing? I think C.S. Lewis said it really well. Mm -hmm. He said that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. There are the people that say to God, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. Or there are the people to whom God will say, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you really want, if you really want to live outside of communion with me if you really want to live on your own terms uh you know on your own glory on your own you know, if you really want that then you get it mm -hmm. everybody in the end i think this might be father thomas hopko but in the end everybody gets what they really want mm -hmm. but those who those who really want to be without god in the end, discover exactly how desolate that is. Mm. Uh, and it, so, yeah, and and I mean, I think that you know, I, I think that there there is just something to me. Okay, this is again my opinion. You know, this idea that that, that well, there has to be a hell because you have to clear out the riffraff. Like that just doesn't speak to anything that Christ preaches in His gospel. No, and it's and it shows some sort of like spiritual deformation that anybody who's come to that conclusion. Has gone through if like they can see their fellow man and be like you know i'm glad he's in hell you know that's scary yeah my opinion <laughs> yeah 
So like, you- yeah, there, there, there's, you know, there, there are some Orthodox writers who talk about this, who, who, so, I mean, to, to universal, universalism, right? So I, I kind of, I, I adhere to what the Metropolitan Cotis was, where's response to this, uh, to this, this question, uh, it is certainly appropriate to pray for the salvation of all people, but we cannot teach it as doctrine, because again, you see, you know, that which is believed by all people, all places at all times, universalism doesn't fit those, that, that doesn't check those boxes. Yeah, uh, but you can hope for it. And there, there are a couple of church fathers that say, you know, and again, this is look, this is poetic language, right? But I don't even want to be in heaven if if, if everybody isn't in heaven, you know. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. You know that 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 I couldn't, I, I can't. I, the idea, the, it's it's unbearable to think, uh, you know. But that's again, that that's that's about their compassion, and that's about the love mm-hmm. that is in, you know, th- that is in their hearts. There are even there are you know some some monastics who actually, in, in, in as part of part of the tradition, is that they actually pray for the repentance of the devil, that even the devil would eventually. Yeah. you know and but again Nisa, that's please. driven by love gregory Not, Nisa in origin perhaps may even have thought that even the devil could turn or, yeah, or something. So, yeah john john bear has talked about that a bit i know john bear is pretty outspoken in like the akapatastasis uh, yeah view and yeah. then yeah closest where is kind of always seemed um didn't he pass away recently yeah yeah earlier this year what do they say? What's the phrase they say um, when you pass away in the Eastern Orthodox Church? Reposed in the Lord, fell asleep. No, it's a Lord. phrase. Oh, oh memory eternal. Phrase. Memory eternal. Memory eternal. That's what it is. Yeah, memory yes, eternal. Memory um, yeah. So, so yeah, you got like John Bear and others. I think what what I struggle with is like, what is the logical conclusion of being bombarded by the presence of God's love forever? Mm-hmm. Can, can someone really resist forever and ever and ever if they're just bombarded by the presence of holy love God, you know? Yeah, I don't know. And we don't know. It's a lot of speculation, I mean, right? Yeah, we don't, like, we don't know what that's going to be like. And we also don't even know what that, you know, what forever is going to feel like because we're, you know, we're so. Um, but I guess, you know, the other, you know, I've always, the, the other the other side of that, though, for, for the sake of the discussion is, you know, if somebody says, if somebody says to you, I love you so much, and, and you say, well, I don't love you. And they say, well, I, I know, but what I'm going to do is you're going to come and live in my house. Mm-hmm. And eventually you will learn to love me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go live in your house. Well, no, you're going to come and live in my house and eventually you're going to love me. People go to jail for that. And I've heard that argument too. But the thing that, that gets me is that, you know, in Colossians, when Paul says, by whom, for whom, all were things were created. You know, mm-hmm. it's like Jesus is the God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the missing puzzle piece to our ontology. You know, mm-hmm. so there's kind of like it almost seems like if it's what ultimately what we were created for was union with God, mm-hmm. then it seems like if all the if all the falsehood was burnt away, if mm-hmm. all the if, if they were truly given the ability to have a fully informed choice with no falsehood, falsehood or in, um, in, um, hindrances, then it seems like at least there's a possibility that maybe some would even have some chance in, in post-mortem, like in post-mortem repentance. Is there any, con- I think there's some history of post-mortem repentance in Eastern well, Orthodox, right? Well, that's that's the whole the whole um reason for our prayers for the dead. 
because mm. we believe that they do offer that they do offer them comfort and they do offer them some kind of solace um mm. and yes and and that they that this so in a sense this is the time and this is part of you know this is you know called one of these acts of mercy is to pray for the mm. dead wow. um because you know that's uh and that's something yeah that's so that's that that's the whole thing now you know you know ultimately god is the judge and and ultimately you know if, if some any somebody who just doesn't who's just not interested well you can't really you know that's that's the choices they've made and they have to they have to you know live with the choices they've made but we do believe the person that the dead offer them some kind of solace and comfort and that wow. and that uh you know that they can um that they can even even influence even even influence our spiritual state after we've died so so there is so you believe or you you see that there is some precedent for understanding like the the case for post-mortem repentance or some sort of education or learning in the afterlife um yeah i think those are probably are, are difficult you know terms because again education and learning are very good western terms uh i mean but, ultimately you, know, you would learn i mean what if, what if you because like the whole concept of like weeping and gnashing of teeth is like that concept of being left out of the party you know mm -hmm. and wanting to be in the party yeah and you have that with like the the prodigal son when when he returns home they have a big party they mm -hmm. celebrate and but where does the older son go he goes outside yeah and the father meets him out there yep you know i think that's kind of like a picture of the party i mean the hell is outside the party you know what i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. um and the father's out there talking to him he's like everything i have has always been yours but but it's his own disposition that creates it hell for him because yeah oh for sure jealous. he's jealous of for sure he's jealous that the son is getting the prodigal son is getting treated so well when mm -hmm. he's and, and he's gnashing his teeth outside you know he's in hell you're sure we, 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 yeah, we in a way we create our own hell you know we, we we god doesn't send us to hell we send ourselves there you know and yeah. um you know that's that, it's, it's you know and it's you know and hell is actually not even created for us mm. that's very yeah. clear that it's it's created for you know the devil and his angels and uh that you know we, we heaven is created for us um but we would say that out of his love god always honors our free will because if if we don't ultimately have freedom including the freedom to either accept god or reject god then we don't then we don't have freedom and then we're really not made in god's image mm. yeah it's just a, it's just a, a you know kind of a yeah then i just think of like maximus the confessor i think i think he said something about um like the freed will a will that is freed rather than the understanding it as like free will as in like libertarian choice mm. but a will that is freed and that that requires the intervention of of god's grace like to open our eyes so that we can you know yeah because our will be see the, the, this is one of the great lies uh, the lies of the devil that you know we think well i want to do whatever i want i don't want there's too many rules i don't want any rules i want to do whatever i want and we don't realize that by actually entering into that kind of life we become more captive we actually you know are we we break down our freedom and we we and you know we become a slave of what we call in the orthodox church the passions which could be called you know obsessions compulsions and addictions today that that you know the more we think we are free to do whatever we want the reality is the less free we become mm. and, and i'm sorry but i gotta wrap up no that's totally fine i guess one last i mean obviously thank you so much no thank one you for the invitation yeah absolutely and, and maybe i'll have you back again and we'll talk a little bit more about 
you yeah. know, the, uh, um, we wanted to get into maybe some atonement or, uh, you know, other, but thank you so much for sharing your experience. I thought it was really beautiful. Um, thank you. Definitely a lot to chew on. Sure, and if I could just just you know say one more thing, because I because I, you know somebody somebody commented I think when I put that on YouTube the thing about universal salvation mm -hmm. and you know um so I I take no joy in the idea of hell, mm -hmm. and you know and and I I I do pray for the salvation of all people. Mm -hmm. I pray that God you know embraces brings us all home, um, but I I can't because it it doesn't fit the criterion of everything everywhere at all times. I can't teach it and I can't, can't teach it dogmatically. And that, yeah. that totally makes sense. I, I think can pray for is... it. I can't teach it dogmatically. Yeah. And I think I, I, totally I, but the idea of hell, I, I don't, I don't delight in, and I don't wish that on anybody. And that's kind of where I'm at too. I, I feel like I'm a hopeful for the salvation of all. And, but I, because I don't know, and I can't know, and I think it's pot, maybe it's possible, you know, that maybe it's possible that really people can become so deformed in their, in their being that, they're almost rec unrecognizable to God, or, or maybe like, they're just so far gone that they, their disposition is like that of the, the older son. They weeping and they're gnashing their teeth outside. This, you know, I don't know. It's very fascinating to think about. But yeah, yeah I mean, and you know, and ultimately, you know, I'm, you know, the, the ultimate question is not whether or not you know everybody else is going is going to be saved. The, the ultimate question for me always is you know am, am i you know is my life right with god mm -hmm. uh, you know that because i think that's if, if i just you know that's part of i think some of these discussions we have is they become mm -hmm. distracting for like well what about all those people there are they going to be saved well, what about me you know what mm -hmm. am i doing i'm you know my actions my attitudes my my behaviors that's the really that's the one i, I have to really concern myself with yeah. is my own salvation and my own relationship you know work out your salvation with fear and trembling paul says that's what I need to worry about. God, you know, he'll he'll take care of the rest of it. Yeah. But then like also the compassion and empathy that you feel towards other people says something about your state sure. with God, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Because because if we're growing in our faith, we're growing in compassion and love. Um, but we're also understanding that the the number one thing that I can do to make the world a better place is to make myself a better person by the grace of God. Reminds me of G.K. Chesterton was asked once by a newspaper in the early 1900s. They sent out a bunch of like smart people. They're like, what's wrong with the world? And he's just sent back. Sincerely, I am. <laughs> yep. That's it. I am. I'm wrong. Yeah. Start That's with the man. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. <laughs> nice falsetto. It's very good. Michael Jackson. Absolutely. Great theologian. You, you, well, yeah. <laughs> good dancer anyway. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough, Father. Oh, thank you Carl, again for the invitation. You know, we'll stay in touch for sure. Absolutely. Good talking to you. God bless Absolutely. you. Have a great... God bless. Yeah. I'm going to stop the thing. Lord. But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust <laughs>